There we go. There you go. And welcome okay. to the Lost Explorers podcast. We're doing this one a little bit differently, listeners. If you can tell, the audio quality is better because Chris and I are busy men with busy schedules, and where we can normally fit the episode in is during the day on Tuesdays. And I have to make sure that I'm available to take care of Gus. But due to circumstances, we are doing this one at night and I can use Zoom. I can use my great microphone. So welcome to the high def, high quality Lost Explorers episode. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, talking to you, I'm always better. Uh, no, I, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, uh, I don't know. I've had a really busy last couple of days. Uh, so many things to talk about. I've, I, I've got questions and, 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 you know, all sorts of things too, that I wish uh, I want to hear your, your input on. There's almost just too much to say. So I'm the short answer is I'm really good hyped well i'm happy to see you yeah yeah i'm hyped yeah i'm currently embroiled in a yet another online internet shit storm sort of all of the conversations today seem to end up focusing on social they don't happen just via social media as as Mm -hmm. as the medium they happen because that's the subject you know that's weird i think i mean that's a hard thing to do for a subject to become or mean, you know, the the means become not just the end, but the whole self-reinforcing mm-hmm. cycle. The thing is that the headshots and the attacks and all, you know, this aspect of the the kind of the turmoil. What what is what I can't piece together is the fact that yeah, that all that happens. I'm acutely aware of that, even though I a little bit more at a distance and i kind of try to avoid it uh there's also the other hallmark of the medium in this time and this conversation right is that there are a whole bunch of conversations we can't have you know and it's it's not only matters of, of free speech as they're kind of mangled by the mainstream media now um but that's complicated enough as it is but there's also all the self-censorship the mm. things that you know you know i'm just not going to post now because i'm just going to get bombed or you know right. and in the background of course there's the fact that everyone knows that they're not going to change anybody's thinking really so those three, so we've got that problem of all the shit that can't be talked about that isn't getting processed and dealt with directly. I'm not saying it's not having a subconscious or you know constant ubiquitous influence, because it is obviously. But then you've got all of this genuine turmoil. It's like, how, how do you put those two together? Because I think that's one of the keys to the strange year of our Lord, 2022. Yeah, let's do a year in review. That sounds good. That sounds like a t- this is the last episode. I'll be putting yeah. this up in the morning on Friday. Yeah. So so this will be very close to the last day of 2022. Before we get into that, though, we do have some housekeeping to work on here. Yes, we do. Um, Chris, do you have a band and an aphorism? 
for us today? I do. Oh, and I've got a great tool and tip too. I'm looking forward to those as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. And your imaginative challenge is actually, uh, it's in it. I'm switching up on you again. Uh, I am. Um, <laughs> it's a whole, um, okay. I don't know why I thought of this name, but I think it's an interesting concept for our time. And it left open a lot of, of the music that might be, but the name of the band is the Ugly Baby Contest. And what they do as a sound through a basic kind of rap final frame, if you like, Behind them are classic American forms of the great American songbook, all the barbershop quartet, all, the whole pantheon of American folk, uh, you know, mm. idioms of music, but then punched finally through uh, a, a, a rap kind of, uh, maybe not, downtown Detroit, maybe more like Milwaukee, something a little obscure through that kind of mechanism. But it's called the yeah, the Ugly Baby Contest. And my after <laughs> You like that? I, I have like no that. idea. I have no idea where that comes from. Um, Oh, I have a great, this isn't my aphorism, but this is a great uh, show-stopping, ice-breaking uh, first question to ask if you're doing group speaking. You know, like sometimes the speaker, you know, I, I, I always start, I or feel very comfortable starting asking questions, but I haven't tried this one yet. And I have to, I, I just, I might, I might not have the voice under control because it just makes me so amused. But the question is, how many people are wearing women's underwear right now? You know? <laughs> and that's, that's all you, you know, it's just no explanation. But I would use that as the, a kind of a heads up, this workshop, seminar, whatever you're expecting is not going to be what you expected. And uh, you're going to have to, um, oh, okay, here's my aphorism. Consensus ambient courtesy would go a long way to eliminating much chatter about the need for empathy. And I think that goes back to, I, I wanted to run that past you because not just in our empathy series, but I think that went back to another episode where it just came up and you introduced it about the idea of courtesy. And we gave that, a, does that ring bells? I can't remember what episode that was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just the idea of instead of focusing on this semi-abstract concept of empathy that requires no real action, but the performance of things, courtesy is something that you do on a microtransactional basis with people holding the door, saying thank you. Material, you physical, like... tangible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, actualized. Yep. 
Yeah, look, I, I think you're being very kind to the idea of empathy. And for, I don't know, a whole bunch of reasons, maybe because we're coming out of the Christmas season. Uh, but I, I, I think that in the new year, uh, we should peel again away at the bark of, of the empathy tree and see, mm-hmm. you know, what's really there. Because I, I, I get more and more frustrated with the discussion about it. And I've noticed that in my little uh, analytical survey of language in mainstream media, it's peaked back up again. You know, it's creeping back up like some little creature. You know, it, it kind of tailed off a little bit, but nope, it's back. And I think it's even back with less thought and care of meaning behind it than than it was before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. I've I've got a list of uh, oh no, okay, we need an imaginative challenge. Okay. Yep. This is kind of in an odd register. I, 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 I don't know. This might be a little bit too. This is uh, good abstract thinking uh, late in the year or early in the new year, if you like. But I want you, this is my analogy model, okay? Mm-hmm. So you're going to come up with a model that works in the same register as the analogy I'm going to give you. And that's going to be clear. That relationship will be clear. You can speak to that and defend that and, and maybe enrich our understanding of it. But when you say it, we'll go, yeah, that those are very different ideas, but they're congruent. Do you mm-hmm. get what I mean? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So here's my, my thought. Now I'm going to use, this is, I think, something that is useful. Take the word and the idea of desert. Now, we've, we've often spoken on the show about antonym therapy, antonym practice, and how that can shed new light on words and concepts. What is a, the best antonym opposite of, of desert? Now, I would suggest that a very common answer, if not the majority answer, would be jungle. I would certainly not think that was unusual or or incorrect. Would you agree? I, I would say so. Yeah, because okay. it brings to mind uh, monsoons and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now I want you. This is an exercise in triadic thinking, so it's a variation on the on dialectic. It's it's a meditation on language. And on the on the process of making models, analogies, metaphors, you earlier did a great job on the experiment, you know, thinking in that kind of science way. Well, this is thinking in terms of creating a model or an analogy. What about if you put to our our binary of desert and jungle, ocean? I mean, isn't ocean a very workable opposite of a desert? I mean, a desert is many ways is an absence of water. So what's the, you know, an abundance of water is an ocean. Mm -hmm. And the fact is all deserts were once on the floor of oceans. Mm -hmm. So I would argue that ocean is a, is a much more interesting way of, of, looking at desert than jungle 
I think that case could be made. There's all both jungle and ocean work, but there's something more inclusive about ocean because ocean could include jungles, you know, overwhelmed jungles. Jungles are, you know, survive oceans as well as deserts. So I want you to think of a model that works on that kind of triadic basis. I know it's really, it's complicated. I can do that. Okay. Triadic basis, a model. And I think the the uh, so-called seriousness of that challenge is a nice counterpoint to the ludicrous comedy of, of the year's highlights. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think we're going to have a lot of fun this episode. I think that I am in the the right mood for it. Um, so to kind of start off, I feel like this was a year that where everything got worse. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. In a in a way that I really didn't expect. I well believe said. that if you I believe that if you go back to the previous year's issue or uh, episodes of Lost Explorers, then called No Country, that I had a bit more of an optimistic look at where all of this was going. I I thought that there would be a floor, and from that floor we could go no further. But it kept going. And now I'm a bit less sure that it really will will ever stop going, right? So what are what do you think are some of the highlights of twenty twenty two? Or the lowlights? Oh okay. Well what well, okay. I I there these have to go in different categories. Um in the category of trends that uh, I think are, are just bizarre. Number one on my list, I think, is uh, this thing of fake celebrity death announcements right. on social media. Okay. And there have been a few sort of obvious targets. I didn't realize what a thing this was, but when I read that headline, it did occur to me that I heard quite a, a, a number of, um, you know, just little flickers of headlines and, and memes and tweets and things. Um, I mean, I've, uh, Bruce Willis, you know, because of his uh, illness, there have been quite a few sort of postings of his death. And then there's this big thread of like, you know, he's not dead yet. Don't do this. Don't be. So I think that's one of the strangest trends Here's here are a couple. Um, I actually found myself reading this. So this is an example of a really ridiculous headline and concept that nonetheless, well, it lured me in. A new study turns the table on the potato narrative. Now, for anyone who has ever thought of themselves as a writer, you have to love that. You have to love a new study turns the table. Do you get, you know, are you in the joke on the potato narrative? Now that, is, first of all, that's somebody's idea of good writing. 
an editor actually, you know, said that passed muster. Mm -hmm. But then you get to actually unpacking that, and that hits on one of our favorite words for the year. I didn't know there was a potato narrative. You know, narrative has got to be one of the the words of art. I've got a list of actually what the the most you know used words were really. And I think you and I would say narrative is like, I mean, come on. So that was, the, but and in the same sort of vein, uh, the Yule log uh, originates with an ancient Viking ritual. Well, I so I read that story because so you know ancient Viking. You know, I thought, and. You know what the story was really about? This was presented as information to school children and like over a, a pretty, you know, like a statewide thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And none of the children had any idea. They, yeah. What's a Yule log? No, no idea whatsoever. Complete failure of, of headline there. And then for some reason, oh, I have I have a couple of mysteries that i want to throw back to you mm -hmm. um i love that nfl quarterbacks are gifting not giving gifting their offensive linemen uh things like louis vuitton sports bags or in the case of joe burrow of the cincinnati bengals he gave them each and a partner, a cruise. I mean, this is, that doesn't seem like, you know, I don't know. There's something wrong with that. Sports, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. there's something here's a, wrong. Here's a handbag. Here's a, here's a handbag. Thanks for being 300 pounds and able and, to. And, and keeping me from getting pounded into the uh, the earth. Yeah. The mo the weirdest thing, I think, well, there's, I mean, where, where do you start? Wow. But what, I really, really enjoyed that absolutely bizarre latest video via uh, Twitter that Madonna posted. Ooh, where she looks like a lion. I thought she looked dead. Yeah, she looks really weird. I'm gonna, I'm gonna step out for. I can still hear you, but I'm just gonna step out for for just a second. Okay. Okay. I'll be right back, but I can still hear you. In my okay. I don't know. I, it doesn't seem right that quarterbacks should be buying their offensive line, you know, diamond encrusted watches and cruises. And I don't know. That doesn't seem doesn't seem like football to me. No, no, it doesn't. In other news, I, I realized that. Uh, I think I know someone who's involved in this form of research, but making pig livers, pig livers, okay, making just pig livers more human-like in quest to ease the organ shortage. I mean, that's just like, you can't even think about that. That's There's uh -huh. so many strange science stories that are going on right now. I think that that's a really nice segue into one of the major developments of 2022 which was the normalization of ai algorithms and technology of that nature particularly yeah. in the realm of art and the dialogue that sprung up around that about what actually makes art good in the first place because 
you look at AI art and there's some neat colors and it can do some very interesting things. Kind of like when you watch a cat wearing a top hat or something like that. You're like, oh, that's funny. It thinks that it's a person, but it's not real art. However, the conversation very quickly turned to, is it in fact real art? But I think between that and the announcement of Elon Musk's intention to go ahead with his Neuralink program, which has killed something on the order, I believe, of 3,000 chimpanzees. But the idea of... I didn't know that part. Oh, wow. Being able to think, like, have uh, a technology that allows us to be psychically linked with each other. Um, I think that that was one of the major interesting soft battlegrounds of 2022 of people who said no this is not art versus people who said well what makes this different from something that looks similar to it it's i mean it's good for the imaginative challenge too that's that's what the imaginative challenge is in a sense asking like, it is well, well yes around yes. around this triadic thinking like what's what what would you what would those steps be well, I think that's a very keen insight to, to connect that back to the imaginative challenge. You know, it strikes me on the art debate front that, that, that one fantastic thing there is that that, that you know, it's, it's not a new debate at all. You know, not only is it good art, but what is art? I mean, that's been the deciding moment about every great art movement. That's kind of yeah. what defines them, how right. they answer that question uh, or how they approach that constellation of, of inquiry. Uh, but we haven't really had that for some time. It's been a very big dry spell that uh, has really, I mean, one of the, you've got Banksy's sort of oversized influence. I don't, I've often wanted to know what you thought, what you think of, of him and his place in the, in pop culture. Uh, and maybe this is a good time to segue into that or not, but we have, there hasn't really been anything in uh, visual art, in a fine art sort of gallery, sort of that art world, institutionalized art world sense, that's really set the boat rocking in since kind of the graffiti sort of influence, really. And, you know, so I think it's great that that's back on. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling that that's going to um, disappear very quickly. I think the interest is already falling off from uh starry night and um i think it was, yeah starting on ai cafe night cafe i think is the mm -hmm. other mm -hmm. big mm -hmm. platform for ai art um there are many though and there'll be many more and it will grow and grow and change but how i wonder how that relates to some of the experimentation that you and i have done and i showcased sort of last time this um ai you know an ai poem I mean, and we know that that's infiltrating writing and that it's going to certainly automate a lot of freelance, you know, hack writing and, uh, you know, basic emails. I mean, it, it, it's it's in progress. It's the wheels are turning. So does AI, does this debate that has happened, as you say, over the last year in terms of a visual art, basically photo modification and the creation of digital it's not really creating any dimensional art. Yeah, it's not doing sculpture in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, how that's going to uh, 
evolve relative to, you know, because I think the writing thing is is well and truly underway. I'm not sure this other thing is going to really, I don't know if we're going to be having that debate again in another year, in other words. Yeah, I think that there have been things that have seemed inevitable that didn't happen. Flying cars is a good example. Everybody thought that we were going to have flying cars and then we suddenly realized, oh wait, I don't want my next door neighbor to have a flying car. I don't want her to try to be parking her flying car when my house is between her and her garage. So there are some key problems that led to that. But I think that the AI, I think that AI will maintain a position of being a fun anomaly because you can make fun poetry and you can talk to it and have some interesting answers. But I think that the human element is what will ironically enough, keep AI from ever getting off the ground in those terms, right? I mean, because human beings, the type of human being who's an actual artist, who creates pieces of work that we really love, is not somebody who has a technologically minded brain. And so the people who are programming these algorithms are teaching AIs to look for uh, key, fa it's, you know how there was this thing for a while about the symmetry of the face and how attractive you were was based on how yeah. symmetrical your face is, which is true, I guess, technically, but it doesn't factor in a lot of other human elements that might like smell or smile or laugh or the ability to speak, what have you, the way that you carry yourself. So I think that the, the way that the AI won't get off the ground is that it's, it's missing, uh, an intangible element that artists bring to work when they make it that simply can't be coded in. Well, I think well said. I mean, that's absolutely right. And I think in terms of, of the engineering capabilities at the moment, and that of course could have, there could be some sort of exponential, you know, blowout and sophistication, but already what happens and it, it does upgrade. I mean, and you can see this across any kind of computer-generated art in video gaming, uh, animation for movies, on and on and on. Uh, that there's a level that where the, the the actual algorithmic capability is not great. It starts to repeat, and it has very specific features to it. And you think, and they become kind of instant, you know, not instantly dated, but pretty instantly, and, and therefore obsolete or quaint. And maybe later there'll be a nostalgia for that kind of design. You think, oh, okay, you know, that reminds me of Donkey Kong or something, you know, that era. And it might get that name and that's how it's saved and, and propagates and, and, and survives as an idea or as a meme, that it, it's an emblem of a certain sort of time. And maybe the AI capabilities in art will keep evolving and open up more potential. Uh, you know, think of the camera, the video camera, that really, that opened up enormous, mm, you know, true. channels yeah, yeah. there. Yeah, the question yeah. is, is how much of a medium, I've been thinking more about this. One of my, you know, science friends who's working in this field, really with the idea, very literally, you know, we think of a medium as, as well, a means rather than a form of resistance too, you know, it's a membrane as well, Ooh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. 
Right. We, we don't think of it like that, do we? We think of, oh, it's a bridge, you know? And, well, maybe there's a little bit more obstacle course in that than we're, I mean, and then we, for, you know, we think back on well, the whole idea of signal and noise and what we, the, the Gregory Bateson idea of, you know, that we talked about from the very early time of the, the more predictable a message is, the less meaning it, it contains, less information. And I think, Dad, remember that, yeah, there's a medium here. And the question is, is how transparent AI will become. Mm -hmm. And then there are other issues then about the nature of art, too. I mean, I think that music synthesizers, MIDI sounds, have now reached that point. They're, they're totally transparent. Mm -hmm. And they're completely legitimate. And yet... Well, let's let's face it, they're not real in a certain sense. They're not physically materially real. And that that question's gonna keep coming up. I love the idea of a medium as a membrane because it's so often thought of in the tech world, Silicon Valley way of seeing the world as oh, we have to automate a process, we have to make things easier, we have to make the barrier to entry easier. I mean, video cameras look quote unquote better than 35 millimeter film, but fewer independent artists are managing to create films with this very easily accessible technology. So in a way, it kind of seems like having a certain amount of barriers that your particular medium sets up such as acquiring a camera, film, learning the technical aspects of how to work that camera and how to frame a shot and all of that, that workmanlike quality to these classic films in a way might have facilitated the stories that they ended up telling on screen. So when you have an AI that's there that can help you do all this, the barrier that it now presents is that is the one that we're finding with the digital camera. You can spend $2,000 and buy a Blackmagic camera, which I have, and it looks phenomenal. And I've made zero films on my Blackmagic camera, right? Mm. Um, I think that your point is really interesting is that what if the quote unquote ease of, you know, of breaking down these barriers so that Anybody who wants to can write a novel. What if that leads to less novel writing rather than more? Because now it's just, so it's, it doesn't, people don't realize that it's actually fun to struggle. Yeah, well, you know, somehow that, um, what you just said, uh, tinged uh, a tuning fork Back a fair number of episodes ago, I think there was an imaginative challenge that asked you to imagine a situation where everyone could look like or look the way they wanted to look. Mm -hmm. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, I, I don't know. Every, everybody could look the way that they wanted to look, so it would all be uh, we'd have people who would it would get into the odd 
moral conundrum of wanting to be a black person and how how would you know who real black people were anymore well and i think you rattled out a whole there was there were like five points that were very subtle implication you know second and third generation derivative implications of of the premise that were really really interesting and and they they really i think they harmonized very well when you I hadn't thought of that before, but when you make when you said them at the time, I thought, you know, I could really see that happening sociologically. That's the that's what engineers often don't see is what the social downstream, you know, implications in the in the walking around world will be. And I just got that same sense with with what you were talking about in terms of the kind of going back to one of the the fun words of of twenty twenty two. Normalizing, you know, the normalization of yes, 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 the normalization of these things. It's like that has become a very. It's one of those words that's almost meaningless now. Uh, The word normalization has, in fact, become normalized, and. I think we could drink to that, you know, if, you know, if, if that's the, that's the real thing that happened. I think we can say that it just, it, it's been going for a while, but I think that, that, that 22 was the year of that. Right. And I think that ties it back to what you were saying at the start. Of, everything got worse. Yeah. Everything just got worse. It's been very remarkable to me that, you know, this might sound like, a long way around the barn but i i saw a tweet recently that was detailing how uh, christopher nolan the film director who did mm-hmm. you know inception and all those movies how he performed a particular shot in his latest film tenet in which two of the main characters are presented as being in this really long hallway And the tweet was presented as, look at how amazing this is. They got an art designer, a set designer, to come in and do a matte painting like they used to do back in the old days to make this hallway appear to be extremely long and to have, you know, tens of thousands of little drawers in it. And the shot does look great. It looks incredible. And the overwhelming response from people, actual people, in the comments were, Uh, so why didn't they just use a green screen and so one of the things about 2022 is that we think about these kind of changes these normalizations as coming from the top down money men who want to save time and money uh, making these kind of green screen decisions but people regular people also are like why wasn't this just done with cgi i don't understand and that to me was a big time black pill for 2022 when i was like oh nobody wants artisans to come back you and i would look at something like the making of featurette of the film and see this art director slaving away with a little paintbrush yeah this beautiful painting and think wow that's craftsmanship that's interesting and you know the beer and tacos crowd was like who cares green screen it have a computer generate it so that's another element to it too is the phrase that you used green screen decisions which i just think is absolute 
Magic. Is that a phrase or did you just package that up and it's just, because I think it's just, it just says so much about what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, well, it's, it's a, there does seem to be a lack. Okay, here's a way to put it. We always think of egalitarianism and level playing field as being a good thing, but 2022 has showed me that hierarchies might actually be good. Uh, and that, oh, yes. And that there might be some value in having, you know, people who, not influencers, but who are cultural uh, touchstones who kind of hand down to the masses what it is that you should like and not like. Because it turns out if you hand down to the masses, like what's what's quality, they'll say Doritos and Taco Bell and green screen and AI and all this kind of stuff. But you kind of do need the elitist quote unquote gatekeepers to be the people who are saying, no, no, this is, I mean, this is all downstream from the complete death of criticism culture, right? Like something that I'm experiencing right now, where apparently on the internet, I'm not allowed to say that I think a, a living writer is the worst writer who's alive right now, right? Like you can't critique those things because it's mean or it's not good. It's elitist to have gatekeeping. But I would argue that um, we actually do need strong voices who say that it's good to make a matte painting and it's good to not green screen everything. And it's good to cook food at home instead of getting yet another Crunchwrap Supreme from Taco Bell. These are good things that you should want to do. Well, yeah, here, here. I mean, I think that's uh, that's a terrifying truth of our time, that that's, uh, that's probably the greatest crisis there is. You know, I think before uh, a final environmental uh, calamity, I think <laughs> nuclear war, uh before oh, that was one of that was a big thing for i'm sorry to interrupt you but that was a big thing for 2022 for me was uh fear of uh, nuclear war which i've never experienced in my life i grew up after the cold war but some of the escalations that happened between russia and the ukraine and the u.s's seeming inability to or complete disinterest in pumping the brakes on any of that uh, you know, I was walking my kid in a stroller a few months ago, and I, what was, I heard a really loud airplane going over, overhead. And the scenario played out in my head. I was like, is this it? Because it was loud. It was louder than a normal, you know, 747. Yeah, yeah. There are several, there are several Air Force bases around here, so they were probably yeah. know, doing maneuvers or what have you, but when I heard that, I thought, oh, is this, is that a rocket? Is that a missile? Right. And I saw right. the whole Terminator 2, Linda Hamilton turning into a skeleton from the flames and all that kind of shit. And I never knew what people were talking about when they talked about the Cold War, but it is very bizarre to, you know, spend some days attempting to make some sort of peace because you think well that could be it well what you've just said is really interesting uh, to me particularly because i I'm, I'm fascinated by this whole thing because of my my life art 
is defined by that capability. And I think certainly the aftershocks of uh, the attacks on Japan and the, the hydrogen era of testing in yeah. the Pacific Ocean. So there was there was just a whole the amount of, of money spent on that alone and how how that figures into American culture was all I, I I felt the aftershock of that as I was growing up when I learned more about you know history. But what's interesting to me about what you said, because it makes perfect sense given your age, our age difference, that you grew up after the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, I everyone understands that exactly. But every what I wonder about is where did that uh, sense of a real potential threat in global political terms, but that didn't go away. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the threat, you know, actually in, in, in real terms, it flipped around entirely the other way. There are now what I think oh, there are seven or 11 countries that have nuclear, I think seven. 11, seven, seven. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's uh North Korea, the United States, Russia, India, India, Pakistan, I think. And then Iran might or might not have that capability. We obviously have China in there, of course. China, yeah, China. Let me actually, since we're on the computer, I can look this up very easily. How many countries? Because I, what I'm wondering about, and I think this ties in one of, with a, one of our big Lost Explorers themes, is where do paths of cultural energy go? Do they get lost? Do they find themselves mm-hmm. again? Mm-hmm. Uh, when, you know, I mean, there are people who really honestly, intellectually, not just religiously, but, you know, with, without any regard to it, they really interpret nuclear capability as the fulfillment of some grand prophetic destiny yeah. uh, of humankind, of an apocalyptic nature essentially, you know, an eschatological apocalyptic, you know, thing of, of that, on that magnitude. Right. So it, none of that went away. None of it went away. And yet it's only just now coming back, which makes me begin to think. I'm always thinking about how susceptible I am to narrative And I heard about this from Tulsi Gabbard going on the Joe Rogan podcast. And that was what actually got me to take it really seriously. But you're right. It never went away. It's like COVID now. I mean, COVID's just as here as it was in 2020. But the narrative's a little bit different. Really quick, though. This is interesting. I didn't know this. So there are 13,080 warheads in the world. Russia's leading with 6,255. The United States has 5,550. Seems like way too many to me, but what do I know? China is the third with a surprisingly low amount. China's got 350. Wow. France has 290. The UK has 225. Pakistan has 165. India has 156. Israel has 90, and North Korea has an estimated between 40 and 50. And then there are five nations 
hosting U.S. nuclear weapons. This is where one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine plus one. So four, 14 countries have nukes in them. But the nations that are hosting U.S. nuclear weapons are Turkey with 50, Spe Italy with 40, Belgium with 20, Germany with 20, and the Netherlands with 20. I am surprised that Australia is, I wonder about, but of course, that's the other question. Talk about, you know, is it is it art or is it good art? The question here is, can anyone trust any of those figures? Where do those come from? Why would Why would any of those nations tell the truth about that? Right. That's uh, true. I mean, it's, I think it's, but it's an interest, even if you just accept it, or I don't know, as, a, as an estimate or some maybe hint of what the real story is, it's still very interesting. And it does it come down to as simple a, a, a formula as this, that the threat of nuclear war proved to be so immense that we just couldn't deal with it on a regular yeah. basis. Yeah, I think it's, well, it's, it's the same as COVID, man. I mean, yeah. the, the idea that there is a ubiquitous, invisible virus that kills people, you can only maintain that level of panic and fear, I think, for about a, what we saw about two years. And then people, I saw the mood shift on Twitter, which is another thing I use Twitter for is to kind of gauge the moods. Yeah, yeah, that's a little canary in the coal monster thing. Yeah. And I just saw people being like, around year year two, this year, just being of the opinion of what are we, so what's the, what, how do we live now? Like, they saw another article of, there's a new strain of COVID. And this one's really bad. It makes your, your fucking head fall off or whatever. And the response to that would be, okay, so what do I do? How do I continue living my life? And I have to think that that's what happened with nuclear war too. I, I think that I think that there's a perhaps a silver lining to this, which is the implication that if nuclear war has always been a possibility, my entire 36 years of life, but it's only just now coming to the forefront of the narrative, then it does perhaps seem like it might be something that's trotted out when we need to accomplish a geopolitical goal. And that I think this is my perhaps misguided faith in humanity, but I have to think that, you know, a nuclear weapon, that order comes down from one of these world leaders, that we have to shoot one of these bad boys off. I have to think that the person who's responsible for pushing the book, for, for making all that stuff go, has got family. Like we're a global society now. Not everybody lives in one place. So you can't just say, well, my entire family is in Toledo and Toledo's safe, so I don't care. People have, right. people, have people everywhere now. And I have to think that whoever it is who's pushing yeah. that button has to think, mm, this is going to kill at least half of my family if I press this button. So can I do it? Some people probably can't. Maybe there's a sociopathy test when it comes to working at a nuclear facility. Like you, you, you know the way that cops take IQ tests and they don't hire the ones that are above 110 or something like that? 
maybe there's a test, a similar test for people who work at nuclear defense. Oh, I'm sure. I, I don't think that's at all satirical or outrageous as an idea in any way. I think there's probably, I, I think probably- like, Watch this video, watch this video of a puppy being shot in the head. How does this make you feel? And if you say, yeah. I feel nothing, then they say, you're hired. Yeah, right. no, I, look, it, there's every chance in the world that the diagnostics are on that level, if not perhaps even more uh, obscure and, and ridiculous. I, I, I have no doubt about that whatsoever. We'll give you $200,000 a year to sit in this room. And if we ever need you, you make this happen. And they say, well, and to go back to our AI theme, I mean, I think that, that I mean, and you mentioned the Terminator series. I mean, how much more, I mean, there are many with many films and books with that idea. Uh, I mean, Hal in, in 2000, I mean, there's no question that the idea of an AI running things, which is maybe what, you know, that that's very likely. And we know from all these scenarios, when does that ever turn out? Well, uh, do you ever, that makes me, I just thought of, I just, do you know the Demon Seed movie? I do remember the Demon Seed. The, yeah. the computer comes to life and, and just tries to, you know, get it on with the, I can't remember yeah. who the actor is. Was it Nastasia Kinski Vaughn, was in that one? Who? Nastasia Kinski, wasn't she in the Demon Seed? No, no, this is before her time. Robert Vaughn, uh, this uh, man from Uncle and millions of other, he was the voice. And the computer go in and just developed a very strange thing. So even if we don't have the uh, IQ cutoff point, you know, personnel in the silos, they are Julie both. Christie was that? Julie Christie, yes, well done. <laughs> And at one point, Robert Vaughn goes, that's insane, Dr. Harris. Right, you know, right, right. But, but I'm not insane. You yeah. know, I just want to, you know, yeah, fuck Julie Christie. Uh, that's I, there's no good. There's no good way to manage nuclear weapons. That's really the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And that hasn't gone away. Uh, well, I'm very, I'm extremely anti-war. I'm so anti-war that it makes me the enemy of both parties because let's be honest, 2022 was the year and there had been clues about this during the Obama presidency with the drone strikes and, you know, killing American citizens and the surveillance. To, but like the Democrats have become the war party in 2022 yeah yeah truly true well that's just one of you know some really major things where that shift that one that becoming the that union idea of becoming the opposite mm -hmm. you know i mean yes the, the truly the war party it's very bizarre i remember i used to see in in 1999 2000 2001 i would see bill crystal on c-span because yes i was a nerd who was watching C-SPAN at age 12 or 13. But I would see Bill Crystal on there and I would watch like clips of Bill Crystal and David Frum and all these people on uh, Alex Jones's show back before he was persona non grata and he was anti-George W. Bush and anti-war. Uh, and they would be beating these war drums and saying, you know, we have to go fight. And I had it ingrained in my head through watching... Alex Jones on the internet that war is bad 
that you don't want to go to war. You don't want to set off bombs. You don't want to kill people. And when Obama became the president and Alex Jones suddenly became anti-Obama, I wasn't intellectually mature enough to see where he was going with that because I was totally caught up in Obama mania in 2008. Many of us... And he was like, he's the same thing. He's going to do the same shit. He's going to make everything worse and kill people. And I didn't want to hear that. And I was wrong. And now I'm in 2022. And you you have Democrats who are the same people who said, you know, if it saves one life, if it saves one life, put a cloth mask on so that you can you can save one life. And now they're saying, you know... There are ways to do tactical nuclear strikes in order to end all this. And I just feel like I'm in crazy world, man. I'm like, how do those two things come out either side of your mouth and you don't reflect for a second? You know, that, oh, we have to save grandma. We have to make sure that nobody dies of this disease. But also, I mean... This website just told me that if a nuclear weapon hit New York City, one nuclear weapon, an estimated half million people would die. Oh, and that's like, uh, and that's the and we're and when we're talking about all-out nuclear war, there's not one warhead that's hitting New York City. There's several that are hitting New York. I'm City. I'm surprised that the, the, I think those are are very very conservative estimates of of damage, because I mean the hydrogen bombs they were testing well after uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were were exponentially more powerful, and and sixty five thousand say died in Hiroshima. You know, so I, I would be, I hate to say it, I'd be looking for, uh, you know, a bigger death toll for my warhead mm-hmm. if I were of that sort of ill. And the, and, know, the, and the population density of New York City or L.A. or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, like yeah. These, I mean, these, things are, these things are incredible. Uh, you know, I was also really, <laughs> it feels so strange to have to say that I was, you know, turned off from the idea of nuclear war (laughs) but i think that it exists as an abstraction in a lot of people's heads but i watched a lot of footage of the fallout from what happened in hiroshima and nagasaki old old you know black and white footage i watched films that that the japanese made like grave of the fireflies things like that and it's once you get a grasp on what you're actually talking about like what are you actually talking about the war that's happening in the Ukraine, or I should say, I just found out it's not the Ukraine. That's how uh, geopolitically aware I am. But what's happening in the Ukraine right now is horrible. And people are being, families are being torn apart, all this kind of stuff. But that doesn't mean you start setting off nuclear weapons. That's insane. That's, no, that's, well, that's an insane proposition. I, I think that you... Uh demonstrated we've touched on it before but the fact that the of the two atomic attacks on japan and there's no point in debating whether or not that was a good military strategic decision or necessary that's, it, that's that's uh that's actually vulgar to me to even entertain that 
I, I, that's my frame too. I just think that's another, that, that's so many dimensions away from the, the absolutely momentous turning point in, in human history. And I, women, children, like, do you people have children? That doesn't, that doesn't ring it. That doesn't ring any kind of bells to you. That doesn't make you feel any kind of way about this. Like, well, well then, you know, and, and we know retroactively, we can actually look at this. It's like we've got our receipts, you know, as opposed to making predictions. We can see that those, that the, that one, let's think of it as a composite event, August 1945, that opened up all of these doors. I mean, think of the expression, a chain reaction. Yeah. Like that's not metaphorical in this case. That's what it's all about. And it's set in motion, a chain reaction of things that happen. I mean, I, it sounds weird, but I think in, in kind of mythic uh, magical terms, you can draw a line between a mushroom cloud and Charles Manson. Mm, you know? I don't think that's weird at all. I think David Lynch hit on this with twin peaks. He puts everything at that he yeah. uh, starts his episode eight with the um, Alamo Gordo explosion. Or was you it Alamo Gordo? About that. Uh, you reminded me about that. Um, like the real evil that's in this world, according to David Lynch's number one, electricity. He hates uh -huh. electricity. But the the demon named Judy, who comes out of who infects the world of Twin Peaks is born from the mushroom cloud. That's where she comes from. I remember you telling me, I, I've got to dig into, I mean, I, I Lynch is, is, I love his stuff. I've been saving the, the Twin Peaks reboot uh, to really dig into at some point in the new year. But that's kind of, I mean, I think there's a lot of resonance in that notion. And from those, all those aftershocks, we see, you know, popular music forms, rock and roll on up through uh, through rap. We see, a, you know, a whole change in popular entertainments and sexuality changing and new sort of, I mean, this flow. And I think what maybe, if we looked at that as a, as a metaphor right now, just for instance, right. uh, we'll, we'll take the mushroom, you know, the aftershock or the mushroom cloud, you know, where do you see us now? If, if that were sort of a, you know, a schematic, how would you place us in 22? If you had to draw we're, that. We're the, we're the retarded mutants from the fallout. That's, that's basically where we're at now. I mean, I think that if the whoa, source whoa. of the evil, go ahead. Can I just, I just want to, cause I think this is a really good uh, tool in progress here. What generation of mutants are we? Would we be, you know, that's how, are we going to use just the, the literal years in between then? And because this could be an algorithm that could really, I mean, that's biological and dimensional. And, and there are other ways to, to, we could look at other models of other mutations. What are we, like, what generation are we? After... My my year zero would be 1945, so almost 80 years. <clears throat>
So, and a conventional generation used to be 20 or 25 max, I'd, was it 20? Put it, now I'd we put, put them in, more micro. Yeah, I'd put them at 10. The 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, they have they have a flavor. Even the 90s. That's good. That's working. Even the 90s does, but then you get to the year 2000. You get to Y2K, another apocalyptic event that didn't happen. Yes. And you begin to get into perhaps five years from there. I feel like 2000 to 2005 is very distinct from 2006 to 2010. I'll buy that. I'll buy that. But wait, now that we're in the 2010s, now we're going down to about th three years at a okay, time. Okay, okay. So now there's a, now 20, oh, this works perfectly as a matter of fact, 2010 to 2013. It's very different from 2014 to 2017. 2018 to 2021. Oh, I guess those are four year gaps, but you see what I mean, right? Like that- I do. Those feel like very particular points and it feels like to me that that timing works out perfectly because i do think that 2023 is a is we're it feels as though we're coming into yet another new generation right now it feels like this year will be incredibly different from 2022 in terms of everything well i i'm inclined to you know totally agree with that i can't think of any I just intuitively support that, but I can't right. think of you know any rational reason why that's not right. And I, I when I when you were speaking, feels right. It plays into my imaginative challenge. It feels right, but I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. and when you were speaking, I, I literally <laughs> wasn't seeing this in the sense of how that how that uh, vision that argument could be visualized first on a computer with some good three dimensional graphics, and then actually materially you know, get some things produced and take up. So you'd have a kind of dimensional gradient uh, fossil record of this last 80 years, but an organic evolutionary sort of path as well. And you could really get to a point where either as a hologram or a real sculptural thing, walk around it, you know, you'd have to freeze it for a moment in time. It couldn't on a computer or, or dimensionally that way, it could be forever evolving, but the physical sculpture would need to be fixed. But you could walk around that and really look at, because all of those areas dimensionally could be divided into categories of impact and change and how you're demonstrating those generational different. What does that mean? How did that actually look on the streets and in language and in music? And I think that could be really, really cool to see that. That would, be, a, that would be an awesome art project. To yeah. Do. And it would take a lot of, it would take a collective. It would take a few different skill sets to, as a team to pull that off. But I, I'm, I, think that could, I, I think that would be really fantastic. It'd be really educational, but fun and weird and a whole new way of thinking of things, you know? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Because what does that mean for the future? Does that mean that every six months is going to be a new generation? I don't think so. I think that these things dilate and constrict. I think that they, I think this is all like breathing. I think that we might be able to see 
the kind of rapid rise and fall in the first half of the 20th century. Because a lot of stuff happens between the year 1900 and, say, 1950. Not, we'll put it at 1945. 1940, 1947 is the big year. Because yeah, that's the turning point year. Yeah, that's the creation of the CIA. That's Bretton Woods. That's how the world Roswell, up. Yeah. Roswell, Roswell, everything happened. So 1947 is that real, that real Truman, turning point. The, the key figure there, yep. Right, right. But before all that, I mean, if we think that we're in tumultuous times right now, I mean, two world wars, nuclear weapons, uh, you know, like what's the diff like the difference between say nineteen twenty eight and nineteen thirty nine is huge, especially if you live in Germany, right? Mm -hmm. I mean that's that's a big difference in terms of, of, of where that's going. But it does feel like the world gets together and uh, sort of agrees to take a breather, like a thirty or forty year breather. Where I'm not saying that nothing happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s. Tons of stuff happened. We had the Cold War, Vietnam, Korea. Uh, we had counterculture changes, counter changes to, the, to, our, to our food, right? The way that our food is produced, uh, our, our culture, our art, movies, things. Like, I mean, things were happening, but it didn't seem to be so dramatic of a complete paradigm shift. It felt like there was fluidity and continuity in those in those decades. Oh God, I've got I've got so many things. I'm going to take the last thing first, uh, but I've just got to. I, I want to make sure I get back to the the harder thing because it's an extension. It's another imaginative challenge for you in progress. Um, but the, you know, the, the notion of a paradigm shift is, is that's a, a, a phrase that we use a lot. A lot of people use it. It's very common now. Uh, Thomas Kuhn is the, uh, historian of science who kind of made that term popular with a book that was a very quiet, he's a Harvard professor. Maybe, you know, many listeners will heard of the structure of scientific revolutions. You know, that's kind of the, the book that gave that made the paradigm shift popular because Kuhn didn't expect that book to be anything more than a quiet Harvard scholar book. He didn't know that that was going to become a corporate buzz book of like, right. and companies at that point didn't want to just be disruptive as they do now, that term in Silicon Valley, but they wanted, you know, a paradigm shift, you know, but my question you or, when you the way you said that it made me think of something of and this relates to a very big idea of that we've been inquiring about and will continue to about the nature of history a very complicated idea that's very hard to peel away from the human story to what extent is history not the human story so can we have any idea of humanity without that but the idea that came to the question that came to my mind is, I do think that we're on the edge of, of a paradigm shift, and that's been felt for some time. I mean, uh, some of our our heroes have, have you know predicted that. Terence McKenna, for instance, yeah. 
but in different ways, right. ways. But let's say we are heading into uh, a paradigm shift and not say if that's good or bad or what that will be. That's not my question. My question is, what is the nature of awareness across a culture to make a paradigm shift real and have happened? And how conscious do people need to be, just your average people walking around? You know, that's the question we ask at the Renaissance, say. You know, you go back and you look at these paintings, you think, and you look at, oh, you know, that, that peasant looks like they're, you know, kind of, uh, you know, mowing hay. Like, are did, are they aware that this is the Renaissance? Are they aware, is, you know, is the fishmonger in London a little bit later aware of this being the age of exploration and discovery? Whereas I would suggest that that same fishmonger might know, the, yeah, this is the Elizabethan era or age. That that label would would be understood. You mean, but you, mean, these, you mean now or oh, you mean in their time period? Yeah, back then. But I think right. these other labels of uh, historic labels of like the Renaissance, the Renaissance, David, is you know it's just simply fabulous right. art everywhere. Right, right, right. Ideas, new cosmoses. Right. You know, no, the, you they'd know who Queen Victoria was. Right. Well, the, yeah, yeah. See, okay, so knowing the, those political... So my question now is, we agree that we are in the midst of some sort of paradigm shift. Not sure when that will happen, when, we'll when it will be, whether that's two years, five years, 10 years, or 50 years, or what. But, so, you know, it's it's horizontal. It's horizontal. It's, it's, I like that word, horizontal. That's a, that's a nice word. Yeah, thank you. And it has that sense of imminence. But the, in order for it to be authentic and valid and to have uh, any kind of conceptual shadow or footprint in the world, it would need to have some degree of recognition in its time. It can't just be something that kind of ripples out and then later people, the mutant Another jet, mutant generation looks back and gives it this name. Mm. There has to be something going on. So how many people today, what kinds, how would you describe that demographic? Who's in charge of knowing and controlling that? I think that's a good way of asking a lot of questions about 22 and what's going on so any what are your thoughts about that i think you so get the you, idea your question is the question that i get asked so many times when i bring up my conspiracy theories and i say they want to do this and they want to do that uh whoever i'm speaking to who might not be as conspiratorially inclined as i am will say who is they who is this they that you're talking to so to answer <laughs> what you brought up a bit earlier no no regular people have to be on board with what's going on at all, period. Okay. None. Zero. I got to write that down. No Zero. regular people need to be on board. Nobody. The guy who runs the car dealership to the guy who works at Popeye's Chicken to a guy like me who edits books and takes care of his kids, none of us have to be on board with what's happening. <clears throat> Democracy is a complete illusion. 
the idea that we have choice in matters of this magnitude is a complete illusion. There are people who are playing a game that is so far removed from us, both economically, monetarily, spiritually, politically. Uh, we don't. We can only speculate at what people like this are 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 thinking about. So who who's making these decisions? I think. <laughs> I think that is such a complex question now because it would have been such an easy question to answer in 1945 when, uh, you know, uh, Carol Quincy or yeah, Carol Quincy Carol or Carol Quincy, I'm having a weird dyslexia moment here, wrote, um, uh, was it? No, Power and the Glory was the Graham Greene book. What was his book? His book was Power and Something. Anyway, this guy, who was essentially uh, a historian who was tapped into all these rich and powerful people, wrote a book about what happened in 1945 at Bretton Woods. And the quick takeaway is that all these countries got together and they decided how they were going to divvy up the world. And they decided that America would be the world police and we would also be the major world cultural exporter and we would have access to all the resources that we could possibly want, but in return, we also would come to certain countries' aid whenever it was necessary. This is public, this isn't conspiracy stuff, this is just real. So back then it was easy to figure out, and you can find your wealthy oil barons and people who had their hands in this and who wanted to shape. Today it's a little bit trickier because we have things like the internet and we have uh, competing interests for what happens with the world going forward. And I think that there are certain people who want to see the world's population reduced. Those people are really scary. If I ever hear, you know, somebody like Bill Gates say, there's too many people, we should be doing something about this. I, my, you know, spidey sense starts tingling. If you have Elon Musk, who's got 12 kids and says that we need more people, I tend to side with that guy because he's pro-life and pro you know putting more out there but to not to digress no further who is actually in control and making these kind of rules i would say that it is not decidedly not a shadowy cabal of lizard people that's not it i think it is people who are as individual as you and i but with billions and billions of dollars and with ideas about how the world should work and what i think we're seeing right now because i think we've been at war for the past since the obama presidency we've been at war i think that we're that we are the trickle down recipients of a very small but wide-scale impact war between billionaires mega corporations and everything from uh you know land rights to uh you know market capture to cultural impact to uh you know consumer docility are all in this soup right now so we're in like we're in Bretton Woods 2.0 which is kind of like Bretton Woods cubed it's all gotten much more complex as people have gotten 
you know, rich off of things like, you know, it used to just be oil or land or generational. And now people can get rich off of diamond mines and electric vehicles and cryptocurrency. And so you have all, oh, a whole bunch of people in, in the mix. Out of pure idea, out of nothing. Absolutely not. I mean, most, yeah, total nothing. That's what hedge funds. I mean, who is this Andrew Tate guy who I keep hearing about all the time who just got arrested in Romania for human trafficking? He's always posting on Twitter pictures of him with like Bugattis and, you know, he's a, like a men, a men's rights activist or something like that. Like, how the hell did that guy make all that money? Like, where did he come from? It feels like there's a, there's a Sam Bankman Freed or a Bernie Madoff every couple of years who you find out has stolen just incredible sums of money from people what was sam bankman fried he's he posted a 250 million dollar bail even though supposedly all of his money was gone or have you been keeping up with the i the you know just, thing? i i just have seen the faces i haven't actually followed this cryptocurrency kind Did of you just know that these like super ugly nerds they were a sex cult they were all having sex with each other. Like you look at these people and you're like, oh my God. Oh, that's, that's worse than the, you know, the eyes wide shut Bohemian Grove rituals. I'm getting, I'm getting flashbacks to earlier episodes. I think that, that we, we wandered around that topic at one point. I think that there was, that figured into our discussions about pedophilia and child sacrifice. Right. Now it's just ugly nerds having sex with each other, which is an, an improvement over pedophilia. I will say that. Yeah. Although, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I have, you know, I, I, I can't help. I love that line. No regular people need to be on board. My instant thought about that was uh, going back to the CIA was uh, the sort of the 1960s CIA in, you know, San Francisco and LSD experiments and Manchurian candidates sort of stuff, which we've talked about. And I think everyone of a certain ilk, uh, our ilk, uh, I love the word ilk. What a great word. Um, everybody in that clan loves stories about the just outrageous unbelievable uh, absurdity and sinisterness of the CIA in, in San Francisco and the emergence of, of LSD and that whole weird counterculture uh, movement, in a sense, fueled by the drugs released yeah. by this, I think, one of the most uh, insidious organizations to ever be formed. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's in it's in the top one hundred. You know, mm -hmm. it, it it's it's creepy. And the Russian versions, yeah, there there have been a lot of them down through history. And maybe that you know, maybe the Knights Templar were mm -hmm. I don't know part of. I, there could be you know the Illuminati could be in that, but all of that mythology sort of mingles and mushes beautifully in conspiratorial mythic. Yeah. Oh, Gen dude, and there's terms. there's so many just just mythical. I mean, think about the figure of Jolly West. Right? Do you you know Jolly West? Yes. He was one of the MK Ultra head guys, and he did everything from visit Jack Ruby in his cell before he died, to having interactions with Charles Manson, 
to probably being involved with Ted Kaczynski, and his name is Jolly West. It's too great. It's like it's a pension book, right? We yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's almost too rich to be true. And mm-hmm. you know, Leishmil Reed's idea. You know, the whole history of 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 humankind is a war between secret societies. Yeah. And he, I believe that. I believe that in my bones. I believe that to be true. Well, isn't it maybe the case that that then what you're saying when you're talking about greater complexity across this whole global grid of of resources information motivation espionage war of various kinds certainly competition that there are just simply more players more secret societies more shadow puppets and that there are shadow puppet performances within shadow puppet perform we've gone meta shadow puppet yeah, it's yeah, a great name for a band, Meta Shadow Puppet. Meta Shadow Puppet. Well, I think that I think that you can see that happening uh, in a meta in a Meta Shadow Puppet sense with the election of Donald Trump, which I do think was against "quote unquote" the plan. If there is a plan that these people can come to some sort of consensus on, because while they're busy make doing bigger things, they want a leader installed who will not give them too much friction and i think that donald trump was the one time that 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 they made a mistake that they thought that he was so incapable of becoming the president that they they didn't put their thumb on the scale the way they did in 2020 and whoops now he's actually president and that's and that's a problem so i think that that's that's a good exception to like if you look at the presidency of donald trump and how that blew everything up, I think that you start to see what happens when the largely agreed upon consensus plan doesn't go through as as they wanted it to. It it reminds me of a line we we've quoted Ulysses S. Grant mm-hmm. uh, before in a series. You know, if if you if, go out into it, the woods. Yeah, doesn't if two men go into the woods to fight a duel does not mean there isn't a third wait, you know, they're waiting. Third waiting. Yeah. But here's another uh, of his quotations and there's another funny back uh, sort of uh sidecar story to this. But his other sort of observation which is immediately you know appropriate to what you were talking about is you have strategy because others too have plans Mm. you know and i like that and my little sidecar story is that um i posted that once on facebook and this and this is about social media and these creatures coming up from the depths you know to you know out of nowhere this guy is apparently like a really like he is or thinks of himself as some sort of scholar, historian. And he lambasted me for directly quoting Ulysses S. Grant because Grant's uh, memoir autobiography was ghost-written, according to this guy. And he just would not accept any other sort of thing. And he was just, the, the vitriol was astounding. Mm-hmm. So out of nowhere comes this little, you know, 
some lantern jawed, you know, fish from the depths of the trench, you know, and, and then he went away, of course, but yeah, I mean, needing, are we dealing with just uh, a convergence of motivations without, so that there is inherently no plan. There are many plans and this ties into this whole plurality paradigm shift that we're getting. There is no reality. There are many realities, you know, there is no, you know, value, yes, 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 you know, yes. there are many perspectives, diversity and, you know, on and on and on it, for both good and very, you know, I think solid thinking wise and also gelatinous uh, mucus insufficiently substantial reasons as well mm-hmm. um i just said mucus that was weird i don't know diversity and inclusion had its uh <clears throat> it's beginning to reach its nadir and 2022 on a lighter note has um has seen the suits in hollywood at least begin to realize that they're quest to embody the rich san francisco liberal white woman uh, view of the world as being not a great money maker yes perhaps we can take some solace in that that they realize that people just don't want to look at this shit on their tv successive television shows like the white lotus has been really uh positive in my mind lars von trier's the kingdom uh, some TVs coming back that is uh, looking pretty good. And you're starting to see, and I've heard through the Hollywood grapevine that I have, such as it, such as it is, that uh, people are, these suits are looking for ways to appeal to just normal people. So they'll say, you know, the beer and football crowd. And it's understood in these meeting rooms what that what that means. Oh dear, um, yeah. But but as it turns out, yeah, uh, a lot of people aren't buying what these suits are selling in terms of their ideological preferences. And I think that people, as much as you know, it's the green screen crowd and the Taco Bell crowd and whatever. Those people also don't like having any kind of ideology shoved down their throat so whereas it's negative when it comes to these people saying why don't they just green screen things or why do you have to be elitist about the kind of art that you like they also don't like being talked down to in terms of ideology and that in my opinion is a positive of 2022 that is beginning to really see uh and i've seen it in you know my own pursuits i've seen a lot of people who listen to this show, who listen to Agitator, who've hit me up privately, who still don't quite feel comfortable enough saying what they want to say in public, but who have told you, me, Kelby, privately, like, thank you. I'm glad to hear normal people saying normal things, <laughs> which I don't know yeah. if I would consider me normal. Definitely wouldn't consider you normal, but... <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to be normalized, man. I don't. Yeah, yeah. Don't normalize me, bro. Don't normalize me. But you see what I'm saying, right? It's like 2022 was a year where we actively started to see 
the rats on the sinking ship it's it's it doesn't have legs if it stays at all it will be through sheer brute force which it could i'm not ruling that out but in terms of uh you know people only being able to deal with a certain amount of pressure for a certain amount of time whether that's nuclear war covid arguably two more important things or this ideological paradigm that we've lived in for the past jesus man almost seven years now i think the cracks are starting to show and people are like oh my god can i just is it okay if i just express an opinion i had a i have a friend who i won't name who took a visit to san francisco recently and he went down to the tenderloin to visit amoeba records have you ever been to amoeba records yeah 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 and he it's said hollywood yeah he he where is it well in hollywood is amoeba records is in hollywood but i there's they're, they're in the tenderloin too i think yeah yeah the one in the tenderloin is the one that you'll see like you know elton john going to and all that kind of stuff but he, he, went, down, he went down there uh with his kid and this was you know he does this yearly but this was the first year that he brought his child and he was telling me that uh you know, he got there and they, he parked and he looks out his window and there is a 250 pound man with his pants around his ankles taking a shit by his car. So he says, okay, we're going to wait in the car for right now and then we'll, and then we'll go. And then, so he's, he gets out eventually. It's, you know, it's gross. It's whatever. The guy goes and starts digging around in a trash can. So they're going to the record store and, uh, they see these two like 50 year old completely naked men in flip-flops and Santa Claus hats. One of them has a cock ring and the other one has a bunch of glitter on his penis. And apparently this is like a San Francisco thing. These two nudist guys walk around naked all the time. And he was just like, this place is different. This is not where we want it. And I think just like, that idea of the guy bringing his kid because he wants to go look at cds and and records and you know have a fun time and you're seeing some dude take a shit in front of your car and two you know just flamboyant homosexuals parading around in the nude uh that's beginning to wear on ostensibly my friend by the way is a liberal but even he was like i mean come on man like yeah. what is this I, I think that 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 the last year has uh, no, and certainly not. I don't think this is COVID uh, impacted uh, at all directly. I think that there is a growing awareness of an absolute crisis, uh, a psychological crisis on American streets, a financial crisis, uh, a civic responsibility crisis. I mean, homelessness is just so nasty looking. And I think such a pervasive element of, of like think of a major American city where it's not a feature now. And it, it's, it's gone beyond tent cities in any sort of sense mm -hmm. of, uh, of a new depression or, I mean, it, it is an economic sort of uh, response, of course, but it's much more of a mental health and drug problem. Um, I have no idea how that problem 
could be solved. I actually had sort of an odd experience today driving my niece around because we were kind of looking at, you know, how to manage and make effective the last couple of hours before dropping her off at the airport. And it's not enough time to sort of really go off on an adventure. And yet you want to do something cool. But well, we ended up sort of driving all the way downtown, like old town. Uh, and it's the first time I've been down that way for a while. And it's a, it was a really uh, dramatic sky day. Perfect lighting and it's kind of weird for the city. But there were so very many not dangerous looking homeless people, but very sketchy, lost, strange creatures that you could easily imagine were sort of bodhisattvas or ghosts or not human in some way, if you know what I mean. That, I mean, I even see that when I... When I lived, I mean, we have stories on this podcast going back to when I lived in Norman, Oklahoma, which, uh, by the way, in Oklahoma, two gay dudes walking around with glitter on their penis, uh, going into like family establishments to buy coffee, they would not last in Oklahoma. Yeah, no, thank, that wouldn't thank, happen. That wouldn't, thank, no. thank goodness. But I, I saw, I mean, I had stories to tell you about, you know, people in, you know, lycra biking suits having sex in the aqueduct by my house and a woman who was just carrying a bunch of bicycle tires down the street on her arms and shouting obscenities. And the homelessness shit is getting uh, really out of control. And nobody knows how to talk about it because it requires a kind of bluntness and distance and, oh, dare I say, a lack of empathy. Uh-huh. Yeah. To really, deal, to really deal with it, you know? Like the ability to put your foot down and say, No, I don't care what your circumstances are. This is not acceptable anymore. And that's what we're getting to. Everything has to be permissible because nobody wants to be you know that image in movies that was so popular in the nineties in particular, of like the parents who just didn't understand. <laughs> Will Smith had that song, right? There's no need yeah. to argue. Parents just don't understand. Nobody nobody today wants to be the parents that don't understand. They want to be the parents who do understand. And let me tell you, bro, I am the parent who does not understand. And yeah. I have no interest in understanding some of these things. I think that's beautifully run down. I think that gets to so many of the problems of the of the cultural aftershocks of of the chaos that how, what what form that's really taken is that there are no adults in the room yeah. there's a refusal to grow up we don't have the initiation rights that was one of our key early early topics in the series and it keeps coming back for really good reason and i think that that is you know it what you've just outlined leads to that terrible uh word parent not parent, but peer int, you know, so nobody's really the parent. And I sadly know more than a few uh, families where that is the case, that, that there has been a total abdication of responsibility, leadership, and the adult stature to the absolute uh, psychoseismic uh, 
detriment of of the of the living unit of what used to be a family you know and there are but there are to be fair and i think this is another way to think of 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 22 uh i think this is the year where we've reconfigured the idea of family and an earlier traditional idea of family is really fighting back and i think you and i both tend to support that in in right. perhaps not all its extremes i certainly not but the the forces trying to really attack that don't seem to have much uh sense to them to me um i think trying to create alternatives i think if there's a positive alternative i think that's also been interesting and we've had those in the past and we've talked about them uh utopian communities or collectives you know there are, i think it's all interesting if we're trying to create new ideas of tribe family tribe and clan you know that's that seems uh, well, it seems positive in a way rather than just destroying the idea of family. But think of all the news pieces about uh, what's being taught in our schools, who children belong to, do they belong to the state? I mean, think of that. That's like right out of, you know, Huxley and Orwell. That really is. Um, and the whole educational battle in 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 virginia in oakland when well, states all across america so the family issue has has emerged again and i would say some people in culture war terms very crude lack of nuance binaries would say that family is opposed to woke mm -hmm. and opposed to say the lgbtq community you know and I mean, I think that binary exists in some minds and it's it's astounding to me. Of course, some people will say, of course, that's very unfair that LGBT families, you know, and and there we get a little bit of nuance necessarily flowing in. But 2022 as a year of family, uh, I don't know, family in crisis, I guess, or family in question. What do you think of, of that aspect of the year? Yeah. 2022 was a, a very interesting year for families being in crisis because I'm thinking specifically of conversations that I had with people who don't have families who could not understand where I was coming from on some issues. I'm friends with a lot of liberal people, and when it comes to things like, uh, you know, drag queen story hour or whatever it is, my whole point with that was as a person who has liberal values in the sense that I want people to express themselves. I have no problem with drag queens. I'm friends with I'm going on a drag queens podcast next week. Like I don't I don't care. But eh, there's just this whole thing about the kids, right? Like you don't like why is it necessary to have somebody with fake boobs and makeup and all this kind of shit like reading you know hop on pop to my kid. Well, of course, it's not hop on pop. You know, it's not. That's the other thing, too. That's the other thing, too. Well, there's so many elements to unpack about that. But I, I wanted to, to seize on one thing, because I think once people hear a drag queen story, they instantly have a frame and they go down a particular, uh, you know, tunnel sort of 
there. But I think you put an interesting frame on it that could apply to any aspect of education and to a lot of civic planning and community think generally. You said, is it necessary? I like that. I think, I mean, I think that we are in a cultural, human, global time of crisis thinking. You know, we are in the red zone. You know, the clock is, the game clock is ticking. We should be applying that thinking of, well, what really is necessary? And also you, you could, that's the serious full bone, you know, sustained pedal version mm -hmm. of necessary. Mm -hmm. You could take that off and, and kind of go softer with it and say necessary in the sense of value and, and something that is really essential, you know? And so I think I like that 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 word, it's a very simple word. And I think a lot of people kind of cringe at it because it sounds like responsibility and, you know, something you can't get out of. You mean I have to actually do it? I can't just, you know, exchange it and and change it and transition it into something else. No, I've, I might actually have to live with a few things. Uh it has a lot of utility, that word. I think that's a beautiful example of, of one of our projects of trying to uh, re-energize people's attention to mundane words, because what a value judgment that is. I mean, I think there's nothing mundane, you know? I don't think so either. And I think that on the necessity tip, it's just, uh, you know, when I'm talking to these people who don't have kids, who can't understand uh, my mild hesitance, there's a kind of furor and, which is weird that furor and furor are the same word. Isn't that interesting? Uh, a kind of furor about you being even reticent to accept certain ideas, like saying, oh, I don't really know about that. People get mad. They say, what do you mean you don't know about that? You don't know about basic human rights? You don't know what... Anyway. But when you start to have a child, you start thinking about the fact that there is something that isn't hypothetical anymore. It's good, not, good way to put it. Yeah, I like that. It's, it's not hypothetical anymore. I wake up every morning and this kid kicks me in my chest and smiles at me and asks me for food. And, you know, I love him more than anybody else on this planet. And so I'm extremely concerned about what forces who don't care about my child might be doing to try to corrupt him, right? To try to get him to think and believe certain things that will not be in his best interest. And until you have a kid, you know, I saw that child being born. I watched him come out and I, I held him as soon as he was born. And he's, he's my guy. That's my dude. And until you've done that and gone through all of the, you know, we were joking about it earlier off mic about how, how many times you get mentally destroyed by a child which is totally true it's not all romantic beautiful sentimental rainbows uh 
but you're different. And I find myself talking to a lot of people who've never been through that, who have no sympathy for that as a position of just this, this matters to me. Like, this is really important to me. Yeah. And I think that same concern applies across a whole range of, of topics uh, in, in the rearing of, of children and education and a whole sort of series of questions about individual rights, family rights, uh, community, the bigger sort of thing there. Uh, however much social ground we end up covering, because some people's lives are just by choice smaller, some by, you know, lack of opportunity. But I think what's, um, there's such a bigger issue though, there in terms of the validity of your perspective as a parent, say, because that's what we're talking about, but it, it would apply lar in, in larger terms. And the question of the, I guess, I mean, you, use the word sympathy just then but empathy would have been connected to of, of how other people relate to that well maybe the fact is they can't mm. and if it's all used if, up with other stuff and <laughs> so if you just said well look that's not if that's not intrinsically possible to do that resisting that and trying to connect with that point of view is it, it, it's a self-canceling proposition that just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So that in order to, it, it's ironic that in order to accept people in social, courteous, civic, responsible terms, in order to accept the validity of their position, we also have to acknowledge an, in, an inability to empathize with it. You know, other it, you can't have both, and I think that's one of the the revelations about the paradoxes of empathy and how that works. However, you diagram it or think about it, it it actually ends up being highly disrespectful of other positions. It negates individuality of motivation. It really works against the medium as membrane idea because it, it just can't accept that. You know, mm -hmm. it has to be this one-to-one -one ratio transparency. And that's not, that's not how it works. It can, it can't work that way. Mm -hmm. It fundamentally can. And I think that's going to be one of the issues that we're going to see in terms, I think the family unit and the whole issues of reproduction and, and, you know, on up to population, you know, growth or decline I think that is the number one area where we're going to see this conflict. And that would suggest that might be where the paradigm shift would come in. Because I think it's just too, it's too fundamental an arena for it not. It's got to, it's got to. Mm -hmm. The question then comes, is this another way of seeing a huge conflict paradigm? that has been coming for a long time that some of our best minds have been writing about for quite a long time and predicting of a fundamental conflict between humanity and the technology we have created. Is that the bigger paradigm that's embracing the family turmoil and some of these other issues? Is that the bigger theme that, that 
this year has been playing out too. Is that possible? Oh, that's so interesting. I think so. Because what are the promises of technology? The promises are to make everything easier. Yes. To make everybody more equal. Oh, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. That's a nice, that's a, that, I think we need to bookmark that. Keep going. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so to make everything easier, we'll bookmark making everything easier to make everybody more caring, less work, more time to focus on, ironically enough, the human element of people. But then the dark side of technology comes from like greater control, uh, thought crime, making sure that, you know, everybody's sort of in their place with their thoughts to make sure that n nobody is violating anybody else's easiness or happiness or, or anything like that. So technology, in a sense, is this double-edged sword that is promising you can have the most easy life that you want to if you accept all of these things that come along with it right you can sit in your house and get a government check and guilt people into telling you that you look good on the internet when you really don't and have no kids and have no responsibilities and that like everything can be easy streamlined perfect but the trick of that is that there has to be some serious boots stamping on a human face to keep you from the general meanness of nature well that's a long-standing uh position that i think has a you know there's a lot of support for that um made me think of something else that I, I think I just see if this connects back that that's a very heavy and what I had was an image that and a, a, a sort of anecdote that I think is uh will shed some light from from a a, a lighter point of view I uh, had a, a friend from West Africa uh visiting a few years back and we were out doing some uh gigs in various ways and we got involved in this uh looking at an it was an art project it was going to be a, a publication eventually but it was going to get started off as an exhibit of classic uh illustrative art from the 1960s with a kind of space age jetsons theme right uh the kind of stuff that that would have been used and and it was reminded me very much of what I've found in my studies about the uh, 1962 Seattle World's Fair, which gave us the Space Needle, you know, that kind of um, googie architecture, uh, what sort of John Lautner would pick up on. But there was these visuals, okay? And I mean, talk about the backyard heliport and personal jetpacks and flying cars, all of that sort of stuff, right? Um, but there were a series of different sort of scenes of family sort of life. And all from that period, okay, so they were authentic. 
And we were asked like, okay, what, what is the, the sociological response today? And so my friend who's not from America, a West African, very black, had a response and every it, it took everybody, all the, the the people, the editorial people, the sociology people, the art people behind it were really surprised because they thought, of course, he was going to look and go, well, wait a minute, all these people are white. You know, that's the answer they were prepared for. You know, they were geared, you know, and that would have been a very valid way to look at it. Right. That wasn't what he what he noticed. He he and, and once he pointed it out, everyone went. Wow. But he looked at these pictures of like a barbecue situation, this space age sort of grill thing and a robot. You know, there were all these different layers of things to look at. And then he looked at like some cars and people, you know, and he said, the way I look at it is these activities here are social, communal, family and kind of sharing and generosity and hospital and people wanting to be around other people, no matter about all the technology. Whereas these other pictures are about people fleeing other people, being off on their own, being individuals and freedom. And so the the head sort of editorial curator behind it said, if I'm paraphrasing you right, what you see first is a distinction between sociality and real wanting to be with other people as opposed to a real rebellion against that, the individual against society and, and community sharing. And he goes, yeah, that's how I see it. And I thought, wow. And when he put, I did not see that. If that was, I mean, I did, but it was subconscious, you know, I was seeing all these other levels, you know, and I think that's an interesting way to see the conflict and maybe to see the conflict with the human and technological now of, of our, and, and COVID has thrown more into the mix with isolating, you know, a whole yeah. couple of generations. Well, what makes people more, what makes everything more easy and streamlined than not having to deal with other difficult people? You know what I mean? <laughs> well said. That's, I like that. That's it. But that's the deal that you make. All these people, I just look, <clears throat> I look at how these people live their lives. And I see on Twitter every day, people who espouse worldviews that are all about, you know, this hyper individuality and consumer based uh, uh, identitarian nonsense. And they're all miserable. Their tweets are all, I'm really sad today for no reason, and I don't know why. And then their next tweet will be, I'm not going home for Christmas because my uncle voted for Trump, and I don't want to deal with him. And I want to jump in. I never do because I don't have it in me. <laughs> but I want to jump in and say those two things are connected because your uncle, who voted for Trump, loves you and you love him, whether you like it or not. It's familial. It's communal. You're going to hang out. I experience it because I go, I did my whole family 
visits for Christmas back and forth all over the place visiting visiting people. And I encountered these people who I've known my whole life and I don't I don't agree with at times not I don't even like, right? But there would be moments where we would all be sitting drinking you know cocoa spiked with a little bit of coffee to keep us up and we'd be sitting around a, f- a fire how more archetypal could you get yeah around yeah. a fire and we all just agreed that it was nice like this is nice you know my sister's got a blanket on my mother is holding my son uh you know my father who we we don't always get along very well he he gifted me some some eggs that his chickens laid and some meat from a calf that he had to you know he he put put down and slaughtered and uh i was like you know if you put any of this in writing in terms of our different political ideologies you wouldn't think that this works but we're sitting around a fire exchanging gifts and i just i had a a beautiful christmas 2022 oh i'm pleased to hear that and that's well that is certainly the essence of what people mean you know by the christmas spirit i think beyond you know well beyond any christian frame i think that's the best of what we mean by that and I hope that that vibe, you know, carries on into the new year. I think that's, you know, it is the essence, really, that is the essence of the human story of, of people who are not the same, you know, that, that, the, that doesn't work. There needs to be interchange. There needs to be trade, warfare, intermarriage. I mean, some of the greatest, uh, creations of humanity overall are these convergences and you know ideas and music and and techniques of sailing and craft you know on and on and on and underlying all that was some really hot sex you know you know i mean real serious skin in the game sex and of yeah. course, terrible things, slavery and, you know, enforced marriage. Oh, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. Cruelty, just nightmarish stuff. But I mean, God, maybe that's what, maybe it takes some nightmares to create some wonders. You know, that just may be the, the fundamental, inescapable fact of the whole thing. But well, my know, sister, coming together, you know? Yeah, my sister lent me this book because i told her i was like your house is cozy as hell how did you make this happen she said oh i read this book and she gave it to me it's called the little book of huga which is spelled h-y-g-g-e yeah the danish concept danish concept yeah and uh it's all about having a lot of blankets around and candlelight but the concept of huga is that you know you feel as though you're in a safe place like a shelter from the storm yeah the womb yeah exactly the womb and it clicked for me i was like these people who are not going to thanksgiving or christmas or not communicating with their family members anymore and are sitting in their apartments where they are linked in 
they might as well be neuralinked into this stuff, right? Neuralinked into the constant conflict. They have no break. They have no huga. There's no huga. There's nothing that like there's no there's nothing there's no comfort no respite from any of this kind of shit that they're dealing with. And you need that. You need that. When they take that away from you, they capital T they. When they take that away from you, you're you're much more easily controlled because you're looking for it. Anything that can give you comfort is it a vaccine? Is it a fucking? Is it a new law? Is it something something that can a make nipple, me feel you know a nipple? Something that can make me feel safe? And the Vikings were a badass people, and they were constantly in conflict with other people. For you know, I read this book recently called The Children of Ash and Elm, so I don't want to generalize the Viking people too much, just because you know it's fresh on my mind, but. For the most part, they were out raping and pillaging and conquering and doing all that kind of stuff. But they, they came back to their hearth, and their, I like the word hearth instead of hearth. Hearth is a great word. So is pillaging, though. Pillaging <laughs> pillaging's like good. A hell of a lot of fun, doesn't it? Yeah, pillaging really does sound like fun. Did you watch the film The Northman that came out? I, I you know, I no, I haven't gone through. I, I'm waiting. My favorite I, film of the year. That. My favorite film of the year. I th- yeah. I, was, I think it. Was, I thought it was just completely spectacular but like when you don't have this respite from the outside world in the form of family with people who sometimes you don't even like but but isn't that a concept like isn't that a thing too isn't that an important human thing which is to make make a hearth with people that you might not a hundred percent like all the time isn't that just what humans are supposed to, like when did this concept come out that we're supposed to like everybody all the time and that because that's a double-edged sword as well and it's very insidious because some very malicious actors can be likable 100 percent of the time well think of one of the the greatest human social inventions of all time and you can ask a couple of hundred people and i you know you could ask thousands but i've asked a couple of hundred people this and i've never gotten this answer and when i put forward you know into discussion they go wow yeah you're right and it's the idea and it's found around the world in different forms but the in, you know, which ties back to the Christmas story, the hearth that is of common open to strangers. The hearth of strangers is really what an inn is. You know, wayfarers and pilgrims, people passing through. I mean, that's the whole, imagine the, you know, the amazing idea that you could have a, a place truly of diversity and inclusion that took people in and found some sort of way to deal with enormous differences, not without security, of course, and not without some characters, you know, there had to be a tough, you know, publican or, you know, bar owner, or, you know, there needs a whole infrastructure of social rules to make that work. But it is possible to sort of find that. And, maybe that's the spirit we sort of need to return to some sort of common ground navigable uh social worlds that are actual physical and real not just cyber mm-hmm. 
if there was anything that the move to being online really exposed, I think it's that. I think that none of these people, in a, in a way, if you want to talk about having empathy, the one thing that I do have empathy for, for a lot of these online psychopaths, is that I know that they haven't had true a true moment of peace in 10 years, mm. 12 years. What do you think that does to people psychologically? Just... Well, what do you think the future holds? I mean, okay, here's here's one way to put it in, in terms of 2022. If you were to say that the crisis of virtual online existence has worsened over the last year, or is in the say the larger process of worsening, what would be some ways to describe how it worsened or degenerated or increased in intense, however you want to phrase that, but what were the effects of that visibly in the last year that you see? So I thought you were going to instantly jump to the whole Musk and Twitter debate. Yeah, yeah, the Musk and Twitter debate is one of them, but, well, it, the reason why I'm pausing and the reason why your question is so interesting is because there are two realms of human interaction that are going on, right? It's like the online one and then the real one. In the real world, not much nothing right that's you know that might be an interesting side note for our whole 2022 conversation is that like we're largely talking about uh trends and uh feelings that happen on the internet but i'm not sure if i've seen very much like in my life when i from when i wake up to when i go to sleep not checking the internet or whatever it's been largely the same, but go on about this. So with the, I'm interested in your take on the Musk Twitter. Well, but I'll go back just, just I want to, I want to answer that. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not sure that, that uh, I know what you're saying about that, that, that what we've been talking about is, is, is on the, in the online world and is therefore sort of virtual or conceptual, but, we earlier, only a few moments ago, really were talking about the homeless mm -hmm. and amongst many very, very physically manifest problems that are in your face. And, you know, you were talking about feces on the street and, sure. you know, yeah, you yeah, know yeah. so those are very, very physical, tangible. And, fair. That's uh, fair, you know, yeah. Um, so that's another side to it. But, well, my thing about... Um, I think that the uh, the Musk Twitter thing is kind of on the uh, analogy line of a lanced boil. You know, I think there yeah. was, you know, something that needed to burst and be uh, bled or, eased, you know, eased off or, or uh, you know, staunched in some way. And that has done it. And to what result, finally, I don't know. 
it it really I, I don't have an enormous amount to do with Twitter. I am posting more. I have over the last year. I re- recognize its reach. I was getting sort of bored uh, and a little bit disappointed with Facebook. Instagram is kind of uh, a nothing sort of, but all of them I think are, are deficient in terms of any real exchange of, of you know, anything significant. But I, I didn't understand in any way what the left's opposition to Musk has been. It's all seemed hysterical to me. I've noticed many repeat phrases that concern me. I don't think they have the robust strengths mm-hmm. of meaning to be repeated, and yet they get repeated. I didn't see any evidence. I didn't really know why. I mean, there were a couple, there was a New York Times journalist who said, you know, this has opened the gates of hell. And he 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 wasn't he really he insisted that was not metaphoric hyperbole, that he really felt that strongly. And others have said that. And major celebrities have said this, that somehow hate speech, which is hate, by the way, is one of the words most uh, repeated over the last year, last two years, and is also fits my uh model of mentioned in the last episode that any word that is repeated is by definition being misused mm-hmm. uh, if it's if it, grotesquely repeated i mean not just you know to that level and i i just i went how does that so in a weird way and also i think uh musk is a more flam he's more my idea of what a superhero supervillain richest man in the world should be than Bezos, who looked just, and Bill Gates. I mean, I think Musk is a character. I I would disagree with you on Bezos, because I think that getting your employees to go applaud you as you launch yourself into space is pretty solid billionaire behavior. Oh, oh yeah. Look, no, absolutely. I think actually Bezos looks and and, and, and behaves. Bill Gates is like a pathetic specimen just a pathetic just out of shape his wife was ugly uh he 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 his his wife looked horrific how is that your wife at least bezos has a plastic surgery nightmare which you expect a billionaire to have on his shoulder but well you know i think bill gates to me will always just I mean, he, he, everything about him is, is, uh, well, I can already feel nostalgic for him, you know, in a weird way, but such a, 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 not a hero figure at all in any way. And I, one of the things that just made me laugh so much, I don't know if the Babylon Bee did a satire about it, but how during the, the height of the COVID phase, he was almost looked to as some authority. And I thought, mm-hmm. wait a minute, why? He's not even the head of Microsoft anymore. He's a retired billionaire with a foundation that is really involved in very macro work of, you know, it, it has no- It looks specific- like somebody who should be very afraid of COVID. His, <laughs> his gut fat is not healthy. Like the, if you've seen the way that that man looks, he might have reason to be concerned about catching COVID nineteen. 
I didn't think of it that way. I didn't think of it that way. But I think, I think, hilarious. Just like absolute scum. I think that Jeff Bezos is scum. I think that I even think that Elon Musk is scum. My hatred for the billionaire class knows no real bounds. Yeah, I think that, that I like that. You're ecumenical that way. Having said that, what Elon Musk did by paying an absurd amount of money for Twitter that it's not worth, he paid about eight times what that website is worth. But what he did by doing that, or in a way being forced into doing it, and then by releasing the Twitter files, I think was uh, historical and accidentally heroic. Accidentally heroic. Ooh, that's a nice way to think of it. I like that. I like that. Yeah, I like an accidental yeah. hero. Mm-hmm. I think we all he's, do. He's an act because he's a billionaire and he's not my dad or my friend, and I don't give a shit whether he lives or dies. <laughs> but I do think that he came in there with a certain agenda. He fired almost the entire staff, which was one of the funniest parts of that Twitter takeover was yeah. when he fired everybody and the site worked fine. The site kept working. I know. To, to <laughs> many, uh, I mean, every, the liberals were horrified by that. Yeah. I think it's interesting that, that, I mean, again, I love how you do this. You used a very, very simple term. And in some ways, I think this is a great way, uh, a great sort of tool to remind listeners about is that there's a lot to be said uh, for really calling a spade a shovel, of looking at exactly what something is, because you called it a website. Yeah. I loved how you could, I mean, that's exactly, you know, I, I honestly, I would have thought, oh, a platform or, you know, this sort of media vehicle, or I would have used something, you know, really like, it's, you it's know. a website. It's something that you yeah, to your phone or your computer. And you and it brings you to that page, and you make of it what you will. But I do think did you did I dug into the Twitter files with the Matt Taibbi and Mike Schellenberger and Barry Weiss and I. I, I only looked at the Barry Weiss one. Well, long story short, the about two thirds of the Twitter hierarchy was in the pocket of the FBI and the CIA the entire time. And they were getting emails every single day to the point that it was overwhelming them from the CIA and the FBI saying, hey, you need to check this out. And it was always people who were pro-Trump, uh, the the Hunter Biden laptop. Here was a fact that blew me away when I heard it. You remember the Hunter Biden laptop story. Right. Well, yeah. Well, the fact that it's not a story, that it got completely yeah. subsumed and that this is the story is that it, this it, is the story is yeah. that Twitter. Twitter went in. They they banned the New York Post, the oldest newspaper in New York City. They banned their Twitter account. Not only right. did they do that, but they banned people from sharing the story through direct messaging, which was a tool that before that time, Twitter had only used to stop the spread of child pornography. That's the only time they had used that feature before the Hunter Biden story. So when you're talking in general terms about was the election stolen? No, not in the way that, you know, 
silly people might think of by the way did you know that the word silly comes from the same root word as soul silly used to mean something very different than what it means right uh, now i think that's very interesting i'm not sure i didn't know that or i if i i think i'm glad that you reminded me silly silly and soul come from the same root well i think that makes perfect sense but they the silly way of thinking about election stealing is that you know somebody rigged the machines or carted in voters and i'm sure they did all that kind of stuff too but in terms of a story like this has never been suppressed as far as i know on this scale that twitter enacted they 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 took unprecedented measures to make sure that nobody knew about the hunter biden's laptop story and we're Which still not knowing what 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 sort of story it is smoking crack man he was smoking crack with like prostitutes and and, and he was doing deals with ukraine interesting interesting that he was a consultant in the ukraine and that he had emails that said you know hey i uh you know if you kick back a little bit of money to the big man the big man being our president right now joe biden i can make this that and the other happen it was it's pretty sketchy damning stuff but the fact that that was all like an unprecedented you know movement to suppress that story should really make people think okay well this is a good example of how i mean this is a fairly significant story in the sense of a suppression of a story so it covers a lot of the big issues of, of our time and certainly the last year censorship free speech collusion conspiracy technology but it also speaks to an issue because i think you'd agree that no matter how much evidence, let's say, that you or uh, Musk or whoever were to put forward to support that position, oh, it doesn't matter. This, it doesn't matter. that there would be some people who would just simply out of hand reject it. So that let me, led me to, this is my question. And I think it is one of one ways of thinking of, of the big mood, the zeitgeist of, of, mm -hmm. of 22 in our time. What would it take to, to convince? What kind of evidence? What will evidence, what constitutes reasonable, effective evidence today and what will do so in the future? And I'd just like to tag on to that, a link back to our discussions about AI in art and CGI and stuff, because the end of the year is a time when we look at the photographs of the year. Uh, yeah. National Geographic published their award-winning shots. CNN does their year in pictures. And I'm very interested in photography as an art form and an information medium. And I looked at those and I had that kind of feeling like my West African friend looking at the 1960s illustrations. And I looked at some of the discussion threads and, and people did not see this. And I was really amazed because it seems so obvious. There were many photographs that were highly, highly constructed and doctored and managed and that were really, really the products of a studio 
not an individual photographer. And we're quite no, they they there was an acknowledgement of that on the part of the people submitting, but not on the part of the people viewing. People viewing looked at these immensely textured, composited, uh, created photos up against very documentary, realistic, on the moment, in the scene, you know, and there was no difference because they're presented to them in the same, you know, this is the year of pictures. And I thought, well, we can't distinguish between these AI-influenced, technically enhanced works and something ex extraordinarily realistic and candid and pointedly so. We don't distinguish. We just all those blur into it's another photographic image. We 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 sense, sense some kind of underlying quality to them, but we go now. the The difference, the the the, the philosophical differences between them, let alone the technical differences, go undiscussed in the threads. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's a fundamental breakdown of perception and alertness and the ability to deal with what is obviously physically very different artifacts of culture. One created in the moment, very much untouched, just because of the person was there, the courage, the luck, whatever brought that shot of it. And one, an enormously crafted thing, or at the high end of the spectrum, the James Webb telescope people and an enormous governmental and private commercial enterprise to bring us that kind of imagery. Well, not the same. Yeah, they're all images and they may be cropped a certain way, but not the same process. So to me, that has undermined the notions of, of evidence and validity because it's undermined perception. So now we get to the problem of, well, what does it take to make a believer of someone that there was a real story in Hunter Biden's laptop, that the New York Post's reportage did get suppressed, that that did have an influence in the real world? What would it take to make that case? And I, I when the people I know, I'm thinking of, nothing is the answer, nothing. And I, I don't know where that leads us moving forward, but I think I want to ask you where you think it leads, but I also want to know if you think maybe the blinders on conceptually about, say, this one news story relate to blinders that we have on about well, my example of the photograph differences, for instance, and major perceptual differences and i'll get i'll throw in one more analogy to sort of maybe link this so this is a, a few balls for you to decide which one you're going to catch the new avatar movie released and you've probably heard of some of the kickback against it for cultural appropriation for it being a story of colonization over indigenous people and that prompted, uh, I did touch into that on Twitter and on, on social media of a firestorm of, of people complaining about it. This is, you know, outrageous uh, cultural appropriate. It should be canceled. And other people going, wait a minute, you know, these are people are blue. You know, this is an outdoor. This is, you know, so I want to throw all blue. that back to you. Those, those were a few things there. I want to yeah. say these people are blue whenever a stupid argument 
comes across my desk. I just want to say, these people are blue. What the hell are you talking about? Yeah. But to your point, to your question about what it would take to shift people's opinions and how people put these blinders on, I think that your answer of nothing is not without merit but i think there's one way out good let's hear it. that's what we need yeah. oh optimism and that is conversion of respected leaders to what we're talking about i think conversion people, you said conversion of leaders thought leaders because imagine if you will think about the story about the COVID-19 virus coming from a lab in Wuhan right the outbreak actually happened where a lab actually existed that evidence existed for a year and it was denigrated to the point of being a right-wing conspiracy theory and there's no way that this is lab grown. It came from a bat in a wet market somewhere, what have you. The lab leak conspiracy theory was reported on extensively by none other than Nicholson Baker. Nicholson Baker wrote 20,000 words about the lab leak for nothing. Six minutes of Jon Stewart on the Colbert Report. Mm-hmm saying hey does anybody else think it's weird that right i remember that and colbert's freaking out colbert's freaking out he doesn't know what to do but john stewart's like is it weird that like there's literally a deadly virus lab right there and then this virus shows up in this city anybody else think that's a weird coincidence now the lab leak is established it's totally established and you might think that that's crazy that like oh well uh, an entertainer can't have that much sway over the way the American people think. Fuck yes, he can. Mm. Absolutely he can. Because established Nobel Prize winning scientists were saying the thing that Jon Stewart said before Jon Stewart said it and were being called alt-right Nazis for saying that thing. But it took Jon Stewart saying it for everybody to kind of change their tune. So it's going to have to be, I, th I think that it's all aesthetics. And I think that being a person who's often embroiled in controversy and dunked on because I don't have the status of, say, a Jon Stewart, uh, it's made me realize more and more that like it doesn't matter how good your argument is or how, how much you read, how careful you are it's human beings still have this hierarchy and we've never let it go. Oh, so uh, I, well, I, I, it's, it's not what you say it's who you are. And I have accepted who you are I, perceived to be, who you are perceived to be. And I've, I have accepted that I'm nobody at best and an enemy at worst. <laughs> 
but I'll still say what I want to say. (laughs) I'll still say what I want to say. But I think that, I think that there's a way to turn it all around, but you have to have the right mouthpiece to say those things. Well, there, there's some really interesting points to be, because of course, you know, it's not, you know, it re, it's not what you say. It's of course, who's the speaker and, and, the speaker. and what their platform is. And that's, that goes back to, well, it certainly speaks to the question of, of the inherent nature of hierarchies. Uh, and, and there's really no reason to assume that they aren't inherent in human sociality because they're inherent in the world. You know, we see them everywhere in the physical world on and so many levels of it. And we accept them so completely in positive terms because we don't have any choice but to within our own bodies. You know, we accept the hierarchy of, of cell to uh, tissue to organ, you know to to larger unified being hopefully so we know that that that's that's got to be there but i thought that you know that also connects back to an earlier theme of our shows where we looked at the 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 cult of celebrity in modern times Mm -hmm. and it made me think that that you kind of outlined two uh, conflicting sort of issues that both have to be true. We've got a kind of quantum truthfulness here where both very opposed things must be true. It would appear that there is always going to be someone in any size society, however you blow it up, from the family level on up to nations and, and, and global human culture. There are certain people who are going to have more clout more platform more impact in what they say and that's independent of how they got that we're not we're not debating that now whether it's charisma or nepotism nepotism has come back as an interesting theme of light yeah yeah and that might be worth picking up on in a moment but someone is always going to have that role so the question is, is how that's going to change. And that might be part of this big paradigm shift that we're hinting at. Uh, but what we've talked about earlier was sort of a degenerative process in the celebrity status from gods and divine figures to national cultural leaders and heroes at the uh, anthropological cultural level down to sports and entertainment heroes, stars, and then further degeneration down to reality TV, the Kardashian level and the Warholian famous for 15 minutes sort of thing, you know? Um, Is that process going to just degenerate further before we start returning back to some appreciation that we're we're going to have hierarchies of prestige and status. There's nothing that can be done about that. The no, only question it, it never is how sorry, deserved but... those can, those are. Yeah, yeah, it never went away. And I think that when you bring up the the huge cultural influences like the Kardashians versus the Warholian 15 minutes of fame, the mistake that many people think is that because they for a limited p- 
period of time get the same attention that they're of equal influence and they're not we still have royalty we still have hierarchy we still have thought leaders culture leaders all these things the 15 minutes of fame people are good for 15 minutes and nothing else right like the person the guy who uh recently the liver king he's a yeah i saw that you saw this guy he's like doing fucking steroids he's fucking clearly on steroids but he said that he got that way naturally by eating raw liver or whatever uh i love that even if he had never been exposed he's never going to be on the same cultural influence level as a john stewart or a kim kardashian or a kanye west right like it's there's levels to this shit right the degeneration of celebrity i don't think has taken away human beings natural need to have a royal family that they look to and gossip about and take their cues from that's that it's always going to be there okay well you mentioned kanye okay i think you could ask I don't think I have asked you this. I'd like to know what you think is up with him at large. Mm -hmm. But it also makes me think of Whoopi Goldberg, who I think has also become a larger-than-life figure in ways that aren't necessarily good. Uh, She's gotten in trouble twice for anti-Semitic remarks that didn't seem to me to be at all necessary. Nobody asked her anything about, you know, and why? And nobody really asked Kanye to go DEFCON 3 on Jews. And I mean, it's like, (laughs) I don't understand why. Why Is this just, are they, are are we seeing deep psychological, uh, privately damaged needs for attention through any means possible? And they're looking out like little sort of psycho-emotional infants at whatever they can grab onto that they know will get the attention of people. And it, it doesn't really matter what it is. There are a few possibilities, but this one seems to be something they grab with. Is that it or what? I mean, why? So 2022 was definitely also the year of Kanye West going uh, what he called death con three on, on the Jews. I think what you said is part of it i think it is a you know a grab for attention i think it's a a spectacle but i think that if you look at with the like if you're in that world and every person in power who you deal with is jewish and your life starts to go to shit you might start to lash out against the jewish community which is not wise i wouldn't lash out against uh of any particular race of people because it's not a great look but i understand it i get where it's coming from I, i i understand what kanye means what he must have i can guess and intuit and empathize with what he might have seen going into that I mean, with with publishing in particular, it's like publishing is like uh, it's all liberal white women. So if I go on a tirade about liberal white women in the publishing industry, it might sound like I'm generalizing or whatever. But these are the people who 
have been. I understand what you're saying. I I think I'm saying. Oh, I definitely do. It's two things. It's like it's like oppression Olympics mixed with a several decades long contentious, uh, like the money people and the talent people, right? Like the the money and the talent coming together. Because I mean, Ice Cube, like nobody talks about Ice Cube, who is way more anti-Semitic than Kanye by a long shot, but seems to skate, just consistently skate by, you know? I mean, he's a full-on like nation of Islam, like doesn't fuck with Jewish people at all. But nobody seems to question like the Ice Cube thing. So there's a little bit of, you know, optics going on and in, in who's popular right now and who skates and who doesn't skate. But Jewish people and black people have been at odds since hip hop was invented. And... Well, I think there are a lot of racial struggles uh, in America, particularly. I think that's what we're talking about mm-hmm. uh, that are not uh, openly addressed you know, and I think they're they're glossed over, and I think it's quite strange. They rear their heads from time to time, but no one can really want to confront them. But here's a question that that if we were looking at some sort of large uh, paradigm shift that we feel is imminent, certainly necessary to use that good word of yours, the good simple word necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think from our point of view, a lost explorer's point of view, it must be something that embraces the social, the human. It it isn't some sort of technological breakthrough as in the singularity of some sort of new nanotech convergence with robotics and quantum computing to create a whole new life form. That's all another sort of fantasy. Uh, And it's not some sort of pure scientific uh discovery i don't think it would be wonderful if that would happen um but it's going to have to embrace the social so my question is could we resolve some of these legitimate historical and contemporary clashes between races and and ethnicities between communities of faith and communities you know social uh structure in a way that's different than the oppression Olympics that you mentioned, that that phrase, I think, which is very valid, the victim totem pole. Is there another way there? Because that could be part of the positive paradigm shift we're we're looking for. Yes, and I live it. I I live the answer to this every day, which is that I get on a mic and I talk uh, to everybody. I talk to people from all different political walks of life. I talk to people from all different races. My family is multiracial. Right. Um, okay. My my son's not white. Uh, my stepfather is not white. My my best friends in the entire world are not white people. But outside of this conversation, I don't make a deal about this kind of stuff. It's it's a it's a misalignment of of attention, right? It's like instead of going online and attempting to engage in some kind of battle, you could just start to live your life in a way that I was talking to uh my agitator co-host Kelby today on the phone about this. 
and he's somebody who grew up in predominantly black neighborhoods and has just always had black friends and still somehow finds himself at odds with the like black literati people who mm-hmm. who, who don't like the, the way that he talks and i think that i think that the way out of this is to just uh just be human beings to each other and that includes conflict by the way that does include conflict. yeah a sense of humor i have a i have a really good sense of humor i joke around a lot like the the last episode i did with agitator was with with our mutual friend grant and i say all kinds of crazy fun but i'm making grant laugh the whole time and i'm bringing up all these racial stereotypes and grant's just you know laughing his ass off at everything that I say. All things, by the way, that I would not be approved to say in this cultural paradigm that we're in. But Which uh, is wokeness, really. I think that's wokeness, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's like but it's loosening up. Like if you've ever actually had friends who are black who aren't also indoctrinated into this, like I'm sure you'll you'll find this to be true too is that like black people feel more comfortable around you when you say whatever's on your mind because they know that well, I think everyone right. does. I think I think that's that's I think a, you're right. I, I think, think that's a universally does, yeah. human thing. And I think that wokeness is very strange that it's a lot easier to find it in slogans and memes yeah. and online than it really is in real life. You know, I don't think it, I, and I think that where it does exist in real life is in terms of, uh, as embodied, to use a, another phrase from, from a very recent episode, uh, is in academia, in, in faculty, more than students. I think there is an active indoctrination program for wokeness in the humanities and social sciences. I think that's very hard to deny. I think that's very suspicious when people try. I think there is an element of that in entertainment, the major commercial entertainment, certainly the publishing industry that we deal with. Absolutely. You know, so there there is something to sort of fight back against there. Uh, I wanted to ask you your thought on one thing. I have every year produces some mysteries, I think. And as far as I know, as of right of this moment, this is an unsolved uh, case. The University of Idaho murders. Something about this fascinates me. I just, I, I, because, and there's actually, I mean, the bottom line as of, as of the moment is there's no suspect uh, in custody. There is certainly none of the other supporting things of a mo- motivation or, or context or, what what do you make of this this story, and what do you think would happen if the murderer was never found? This is an event that completely missed me. So you're going to have to fill me in on the University of Idaho. I'm not I'm not sure what's going on. Oh, okay. Well, see now this in itself maybe is is the real story. You know, sometimes what the topic is isn't really the topic. Yeah. Okay. Because I I've heard this from other people too mm-hmm. that uh they did not pick up on it in the way they did maybe the Gabby story, the Gabby Petito story which we talked about. We did a we did a few episodes on that. Too, yeah. Uh 
whereas other people, and I suppose I'm one, seem to be sort of acutely aware of it. And I don't know if that's a difference in information channels. I don't know if that's just personal curiosity. But anyway, um, going back uh, a while now, in um, into well into November, I think maybe, yeah, November still, uh, four University of Idaho students, uh, three females and a male. There was a male-female couple, and then these two uh, women who were like twins. I think I did mention that part in an earlier episode. They always dressed like each other. They were really super close girlfriends. They were horrifically stabbed to death in bed in their shared house uh, in Moscow, Idaho. Two other roommates were downstairs sleeping as a couple, and they were not attacked. Mm. And so that's the news story. But as it stands now, the FBI, the Moscow police, the state police, on and on and on, they have not found anyone. Right. So it, I think, I think we did talk about this. And the question was, did it have to do with what these students look like? The fact that there are four of them, that they're so perfectly photogenic mm-hmm. and white, let's face it, that's, that's a key part of it. I think in visual terms, they they just really are emblematic of a certain, you know, white college students or white university students of a certain kind of party kind. And there it's a party house, you know, right. see, so these are not, you know, necessarily academically strong. And there are four of them, so it's kind of harder to relate to. Uh, but I think you've answered my question. In the sense that you you really that's not on your radar at all as a no, story. No, this is the first I've heard of it. I'd never heard of that. Really? Yes, sir. Okay. Well, that raises, I think, some really interesting questions about um how stories okay, take a moment and this is think of a story, and you know, like a whole range of and you've mentioned a few things, but a a, a fairly major one. That and I'll and see if I know if, if I'm familiar with it at all. Because I'd say uh, this is pretty big. Uh, researchers recently found micro uh, microbial evidence of COVID nineteen in Italian wastewater dating back to September twenty nineteen. I'd have to say I have not heard directly of that, but I, I think I would have heard of that in the context of a general flow of information. Here's another one. And this connects with things that we're really interested in because we've talked about the Blythe and Taglios and the Nazca lines, you know, earth art that can only be seen really from the air, that mystery. Mm -hmm. Have you heard about the latest discoveries at the Nazca lines? No, but uh, you have piqued my interest. Okay, okay. Well, this is one thing I wanted. There are distinct, you know, the Nazgons are kind of, uh, well, they're, they're geometric and abstract. I think everyone would agree on that. And they'd also agree that they've been pretty well documented now for quite some time. They've a lot of land surveying, a ton of aerial surveying, a lot of satellite imagery. So they're not new. Well, suddenly quite a few new figures have appeared and these are figurative representational uh totem type of creatures 
some recognizably animal, some more supernatural or dreamlike. And this has been reported in, in a, the major popular science magazine. So they, it appears completely legitimate. But when I heard about, and this is only in the last month, last for a couple of weeks, my first thought was, because I'm so interested, and we've talked about the Blythe and Taglios, and I've, I've created a kind of pseudo art piece based around this idea. I thought, I, I'm thinking crop circles here somehow, mm. you know? I'm thinking that somehow this just, I can't believe these images these and they're not images; they're actual indentate. They're you know, earth art. I can't believe those would have gone unnoticed till now. I mean, I can technically, I can, I can understand that, but something doesn't jive. You know what I mean? I know. Yeah. Well, it's your gut. It's your gut. So, and I think that guts are something that people should listen to. I'm very interested in this, though. And I think that where I would push back on that is that I think that our technology and our ability to map and document mm -hmm. things. Yes. I think I think we've overestimated what we can see a little bit just based on watching, you know, shows on Disney Plus about people using LIDAR to be able to see through trees and find new pyramids in Central America and South America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the ocean, the ocean's the big one, right? Like we're always finding new things about the ocean. So I think that because we can go on Google Maps and I can find your house and you can find my house, we, we think that we've figured it, that we figured out our whole world. Yeah. Our world. Our yeah. world is imminently discoverable by anybody who cares to look. It's a beautiful phrase. That's a beautiful phrase. Yeah. But but like the world, the world might not be. So my instinct and my I don't know, my imagination. I, I do like that you are suspicious of this immediately though, because people have to be that way. We're we're representing the, the two sides of the coin where you are suspicious and I think that that's good. But I am a completely doe-eyed believer. Like, oh, what what are they? Oh, let's see. I, I'm glad you appreciate because you know me. Like in other ways, I'm exactly that. I'm I'm really want to believe. You know, I really do. But this and one seems it, weird to you. Yeah, and yeah. and it, it it was a weird to be instinctively at that gut level on that. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't I can't walk away from that. That like was this, my this feels reaction. fake to me. This feels yeah. to me. Yeah. I love the designs though, too. I love the, I love the creatures and I think it's possible, but, and I want to believe, but I, I, some, something doesn't sit right. Mm -hmm. And that's my sort of theme of what 2022 is. It just, I wow, wouldn't December 19th. You were on it. This is, this is latest news. I'm on Reuters right now. Researchers discover over 100 new ancient designs in Peru's Nazca lines. Okay, so we got some llamas. I buy that. 
I buy, I mean, llamas, of course, right? Like, oh, yeah, okay, but now here's, a, yes, that's the problem. Then you get an of course, but now you look at some of the other creatures that aren't so, and then you start to think, well, a llama, that seems like what a, I would brief an art directing team to do. What What are we, if we had to sort of have creatures, we not, you know, a little bit yeah. too, you know, it, it doesn't. Uh, I get exactly what you mean, and I'm just coming upon this for this uh third image which is two meters in length and the only word that i can use to describe it is twee and i don't Ooh, think i love twee, that word i don't think twee existed no when this could be i'm beginning to see what you mean let me without without yes i'm so grateful for this this is validation of a very strange premise which is against my nature but i have yeah, to it's against completely my own. Too. uh i'm seeing a headless guy where his head is off to the side but it's bigger but it's in a kind of a spiral i'm very skeptical of that because it doesn't feel like that would be what these people would be drawing okay a bird i buy this one a 10 meter long bird that i believe that one i felt that way i i, I think you're giving a great this is a great recap it's like but a sports cap this thing. guy looks like he could be on a nickelodeon cartoon with a mohawk i'm not buying it um so i will say i believed half of those I think that's fair. I think that I'm on to, I, 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 I accept that. I think that's the guy with the head out. missing where his head is off to the right, but it's also a spiral. That seems completely fake to me. There's, I, be, I believe, the, I believe the llamas, I believe yeah. the bird. Okay. Uh, I believe the I bird. Believe, yeah. I believe the, uh, uh, I don't believe the girl with the crazy hair. So yeah, so about half from I just watched. Apparently there are hundreds of these, but I just saw seven images on Nat Geo, and I believed three of them. And this the other four, is the other four do seem that. strange. The other four do seem strange. And that raises so many questions about okay, well, what do these figures? How do they interact with the Nazca lines? What's the relationship? Are I mean. How do they fit in any kind of symbolic? These are very small too. These are yeah. Between two Why and the difference meters. in scale? Yeah. You know, and it, I don't. It, I wouldn't. I wouldn't include them as a part of the Nazca lines because the Nazca lines are one of my favorite uh, historical mysteries. Yeah, me too. It's, it's it's so fascinating, right? Like for someone to conceive to do that and to make the designs that they made uh everything about it is everything about it is in mysterious it's so mysterious the social organizational labor management is bizarre because it's not like you're building a pyramid or something that everyone can see and you have to have really had a plan you couldn't just be improving and and accumulating stuff on a cave wall but it's and like, it but becomes, now we found now we found two meter wide designs that look like they could be off car, Cartoon Network. I'm I'm very skeptical about. Okay. About yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Well, thank you. I, I think I think our point of departure is that you're a you're a llama denier, 
and I'm a llama, <laughs> I'm a llama truther. I think the llamas could be real. <laughs> that is so beautiful. That is it, and that is well said in the in the lingo of of today. Well, our sad lingo. Our our sad lingo. I think we got to start wrapping this up because it's coming. Yeah. Okay. It's time to hear here. back on your analogy, and then. I've got a tool, a tip, and a dream as usual. All right. Well, this is, uh, I figured I would open this up to a bit of discussion because this triadic thinking is very interesting to me. Uh, the antonym of desert, not necessarily being jungle, but ocean is fascinating. So I thought in terms of a model, it might be good uh, to divide this into two levels, right? So the first level is an assessment of characteristics. Okay. Difference in characteristics. But the second thing, and where I think you'll find this interesting, is uh, an assessment of feeling. So oh, okay. That's... What, what feeling do you get from a desert? And then what would be the oppositional feeling to that feeling of being in a desert? I don't mean necessarily physical feelings in terms of like oh well if i was in a desert i would feel uh thirsty so i would want to go somewhere with water even though ocean water of course isn't drinkable but um i think that the 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 model of triadic thinking in terms of finding these opposites is something that could be dug into in terms of of a kind of feeling where you know is the is the moon the opposite of the earth or is the sun the opposite of the earth right like what's the actual opposites that we're working with here i think that in terms of the thing that you feel when you think of the earth and then the thing that you feel when you think of the sun and the moon I think you would say the moon was the opposite of the earth, right? Because the sun is bright, life-giving, energetic, all the things that you associate with earth. And the moon is something that I've always perceived of as being a bit more dead and inert and orbiting. Uh, so, uh, so that's what I've got in terms of that. I think that the model would have to include... Uh, a more scientific assessment of characteristics and their differences. But I think that the tricky esoteric part of that is the assessment of, of feeling what feels opposite of the thing that you're talking about. I think that's a, that's a very interesting uh, extension of, of the triadic idea and in, in the antonym uh, method. I think that's, that's really a good example of taking you know, a model and then building on it and using that model to construct more nuanced and interesting and dimensional and, and complicated. Uh, and that helped me. I mean, here, here's an interesting, really instantaneous uh, answer of when, you know, said, what does the, the idea of the desert, how does, what, what feeling does that create? And I instantly thought, for me, cathedral, which is that. really no. I love that. I, I agree with you one hundred percent. I don't know what you mean, but I agree with you. 
<laughs> no, and it's well. I thank you. I mean, I think it's on that. I'm not sure what I mean either because it seems so counterintuitive. I mean, a cathedral is the ultimate man-made uh, project of humanity in a sense, or it's an emblem of that. You get the same feeling looking at the ceiling of a cathedral as you do standing in white sands. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same. It's it's well holiness, right? I think maybe that's what you're getting at is there's a there's a feeling of of holiness but but the human being occupying it as being a necessary part of its holiness perhaps well it, what's what's interesting though you you have a very you have a strain you have that that definite sense of holiness and the sacred and that all but there's an inversion very obviously between giant open space undefined hard to navigate because of no reference point sense of the desert possibly versus a very contained constructed ultimate expression of artifice and human genius mm -hmm. in the cathedral mathematical artistic uh, a triumph of don't of you knowledge. feel kind of that artifice when you look at the grand canyon though well yeah see i think that's i think that it uh you know, the old question, you know, is the is New York, is Manhattan skyline as natural as the Grand Canyon? I think we might flip it around, as you've just done, and said, well, is, isn't the Grand Canyon as designed mm -hmm. as, as Manhattan? And I, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty fucking designed. <laughs> it looks cool. <laughs> well, it, 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 no matter how you, you know, if you get into the philosophy of what being designed might imply that's gets difficult but in pure visual experiential terms mm -hmm. it's designed there's yeah. no denying it you know right. you right. can talk about it like a work of art you know yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's really uh i i tried to apply that same uh logic that same structural approach to jungle and I got confused instinctively, and I think not quite as fast as Cathedral appeared with Desert. I got uh, Dream. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was the jungle was almost too chaotic to process, but with Ocean, um, faster, but not quite as fast as Cathedral, I got Birth Death. But mm -hmm. the, the idea was that it appeared as one total convergence. There was no separation. It wasn't birth and death. No, it was birth death. You know, mm -hmm. that's what ocean means. It's mm -hmm. it's too elemental to to break down any further. That was well done. I think that was beautiful. Cool. That's a tool that can be used. I'm glad. I'm looking forward to your tools and tips here. Give me those okay. tools. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. This speaks to a whole bunch of issues that we've been talking about. It gets back to the empathy idea, uh, which underlines a few of, of the shows throughout the series. And we're you know into 130 plus episodes now into the new year. But it also speaks to some of the issues that we've been talking about just this episode. And I think it's a beautiful example of finding an enormously practical real life scenario example that most of us have experienced in some way. Mm -hmm. And it is the situation. And one of the underlying important points here is that everything has situational 
context. And we tend to forget that. We tend to let things get abstract when they're not. But it's the ride to the airport scenario. And you've got the person leaving, the passenger departing, and the, the local giving them the ride there, saving them the cab money. I think that's the situation we've all been in. Right? You've been on both sides of that, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to point out a really practical structural difference between the interior uh, scenarios or objectives. And I think that's helpful in itself. When you think of, you know, like actors talk about, what's my motivation here? Think about it, the scenario that they are in within themselves, not just that motivation, that, that, that one scene or that one moment or that one line, but where does that come from? Mm -hmm. The person dropping the, past, the, the, the friend who's been visiting off is worried about traffic and hassles and getting the person the friend there on time you know it's been a fun time we don't want to miss the plane we don't want some hiccup now we want we want that person to get home whereas the person catching the plane may really their goal is to not wait in the airport any longer than they have to so they're trying to extend that ride that time outside the airport and the, the driver friend is really trying to limit it. Just they, they want to get the friend to the airport and they're done. They, they've, you know, the job is done. Mission accomplished. So waiting to the last minute is the last thing they want because they've got the stress. Will the timing be right? Will they get, you know, they're going to go another round or they're going to maybe hang out where they're hanging out a little bit longer. Is that going to mean a, a last minute rush? Is that going to mean more stress? And is that going to affect their goodbye? You know, they're not as fun. They want to be able to say a, a proper goodbye to their friend. So two very different objectives. And they're, what's the reconciliation of those? There, there is only one, really. There's a compromise, isn't there? The, the, the one leaving is going to have to agree to wait in the airport a little bit longer to reduce the stress on the friend doing the driving. The friend doing the driving is going to have to take on board a little bit more stress to ease the boredom of the other friend. And the balance is, is the real life practical achievement of that. And that's a, you know, we tend to forget that sometimes, well, a lot of times, it comes down to a 50-50 split. I mean, that's, it sounds too simple and brutal and stupid. We want things to be more complicated and nuanced. And, you know, we want to be more intuitive and, and, and don't have every. But no, it comes down to, I don't want you hanging out in the airport for two hours. But I think an hour might be fine if it's going to reduce my traffic time, you know, mm -hmm. and passes and stress so you know and and it's kind of on that basis and i think smart people often forget that because they want to be smarter than something so blunt as a 50 50 split there and i my the tool is try to apply that logic to it's a kind of variation on occam's razor you know that logic idea of don't don't look at the more exotic explanations when a simpler one will do. It's a variation on that. 
But do the 50-50 split. Look at things really structurally, particularly with interrelationship issues, and just Mm -hmm. really, really, really split it. And also, I just want to say, I won't try to get into the conversation we had, but I want to tell listeners that David laid down a very, very simple, and the beauty of it is it could even be called simple-minded, dynamic, algorithmic (laughs) explanation of male-female communications. Mm -hmm. And I think it applies beyond sexuality. It's just, it's, it's, it's male, female, we'll leave it there. But I think he laid down a formula for success in those interrelations, those intercommunications that was just gorgeously simple (laughs) and fits this program. And we might have to talk about that in the new year, but it's contentious because I think just, just it's contentious because it is so straightforward, you know, it's it's very straightforward and it's very simple, but every, every friend who's been having trouble with his girlfriend or wife who I've told this to has come back to me a few days later and said, Holy shit, that really worked. And I say, Yep. Yep. I well, figured it's... it out, bro. I could write a self-help. I would have to figure out how to balloon it out to about 60,000 words to, to make it worth the, the page space. But it is so simple that it, it doesn't, it doesn't require that I could, I'm not going to, but I could tell, I could tell listeners right now what it is. If you well, it's a, it, it's a, it's a, it is everything that that we were saying, and it's also everything in in terms of simplicity. Uh, but I think that we often, you know, take for granted simplicity or ridicule it, or think that we should be above it. And it makes me think of some of the the twelve points in Jordan Peterson's uh, second book, which made him enormous amounts of money, and it is part of the. Uh, suspicion and vitriol aimed at him by the left they took issue with the common sense nature of of some of his admonitions and yeah you think okay yeah well they're common sense because they're they're straightforward and they're simple to say nobody's saying they're simple to do you know that's not what it take the, the simple beautiful even raw idea that works the working is the hard part and putting that into practice, but there's no apology needed for something that is a really good model. And I think we should get to uh, what you're done, not for this episode, but I think we, I think it deserves its own uh, sort of talking point sort of session because it will be contentious too, you know, and yet why, you know, who really is going to argue with that was my thought when you said it, I thought, yeah, you know, but that's my my tool. Let's not underestimate some very basic, simple things and the and the, the value, the profound value. Um, but here's a and here's a tip that builds on this. And this is for uh, well, you have some OCD uh, characteristics which you've talked about. So this is, and I do too. I think we. I think it's very common. And this is. Uh, something that you can do at home for for no money and it is really worth trying as a discipline it ties into the hyoka contrarian models that we've talked about in shaman practice and native american cultures and others around the world 
but it's the mismatched sock exercise. Mm-hmm. Okay. I might have mismatched socks on right now, actually. Well, there you go. You see now that is, you know, now think about what that means. Cause we've got these people worried about binaries and here they have two feet, hopefully, you know, and they should, you know, be grateful for them. Uh, two socks to get right, you know, and they kind of have a natural shape to them. It's not like quite like shoes. Shoes are a little bit harder to mismatch and not and forget about. But that's why socks are so good. So you take a couple <laughs> of pairs and you really do. And they're really wrong. You know, we're not talking about a black and a gray. You could start with a black and a gray sock if you're OCD or, you know, two different shades or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. but ease yourself into it. But now the, the, the nature of the exercise is try to extend that over a few days and really just spend a couple of moments journaling it. At what point does a new mismatch system begin to insinuate itself? How long can you really just be kind of at random with your socks? How long before you just go, no, no, I've, I've, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to wear match socks. I'm sorry. I just can't, I can't deal with it. Or someone's going to see I'm at a job interview, you know, someone's going to notice. And yeah, and you'd feel guilty explaining, well, I'm doing a psychological test to see how long I could put up. With <laughs> so that's my tip. See yeah. how long you can go before some new system interesting. And what form does that take? Because that's something that that's coming from within your own framework. And it's a little bit of hint of a hint of where some of your deep grammars and deep semantic structural ideas are coming from. That's awesome. So, Those are bangers. Those are good. Do you have a dream for me? I do, you know, and uh I went uh I went to sleep, I think, really deep in a meditation about the nature of deja vu. And I was getting these vibes while still kind of awake but tired that I was on to some breakthrough. You know how you have it, you know, maybe back in the drug days, you know, you felt like you were one little just click of the, if someone just said something or if the right piece of paper with a note blew by, that would be the key to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And fortunately you kind of come down from that and go, no, maybe I need to get back to the girlfriend and remember, Oh, I I think I left someone at the bus station, you know, and you get back to real life. Uh, So I was thinking about deja vu and I was thinking about the weird flashbacks that I have that I can't, I'm trying to get some sort of real terminology around it for the memory book. And I was drifting off and for some reason, oh, the other thing that converged in my mind is my theory of using adventurous language to enliven your mind. You know, if you say things like, oh, the windward passage from Jamaica, you know, you suddenly, you know, it's a little bit, it's not normal for speech today but it, it, it fires up different parts of your brain. And I was thinking about the expression of Portuguese man of war. 
you know, which was a, a kind of sailing vessel, but it's also a kind of uh, jellyfish-like creature. Highly, it can be highly dangerous. Do you know what they, they look really quite beautiful. They're, they're, they're blue bottle jellyfish. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. but they're, sure. they're colonial organisms. Hmm. And that's a phrase that is really worth looking into because they're not really discreet, you know, beings unto them. So I went to bed sleep thinking about deja vu, my weird flashbacks and these organisms that aren't really following the boundaries that they appear to They're, And I, well, that's a model for who we really are. And in the dream, so with all of that, I was in a really, you know, basic situation of I had moved into this apartment building in another city, kind of like a weird uh, fairy tale version of lower Manhattan. And I was on some sort of art fellowship there and I was meeting my fellow uh, uh, tenants but they had all been there before me. I was new. As I was with them, I realized that they weren't individuals, that in fact, I was seeing this composite being that was really unto itself in a way that I had never known before. And I started to really, really freak out. And it was this beautiful sort of autumn day outside and it looked cold. But I thought, I've got to get away. I, there's, I've got to get away. And there was a cat in the apartment and I looked over at the cat and it disappeared and it was in a window. It was in an open window. And I thought, mm-hmm. that's my way out. And then I got out on the fire escape and it was cold. And it was really old metal and it was sort of creaking. And I knew I'd make a lot of noise going down it. And then I thought to myself, wait a minute. If this is a weird, mysterious composite being like I've never met before, I have a responsibility to go back there and connect with it, at least to find out more about it. Uh And so I went back in and as I did, the cat came in and jumped in my lap as if that was my little sort of familiar protector to deal with this strange jellyfish presence of these people, you know, who were still looking just like three kind of artist people, you know, in the common room of a, you know, an apartment. But I decided I had to go back. And an obligation. So that is the the vibe of 2023. Yeah, I hope we, so. We have to. Right? We have to go back. We have to. We have to just. We see it all, and there's a path that involves peace and quiet, and just forgetting that any of that existed. But there's a niggling little thing here in the back of our brain. That says we have to go back. Yeah, and we have we have to just to stay just, in it, to stay exploring. Just yeah, and and kind of, I mean, I think it's it's a little bit drawing on the Gus energy of being curious about the world. And I, 
I've been enjoying in my mind one of the things I've thought about our episodes of the wonderful moments of timing when he's come in with particular exclamations and farts. And, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was a great one. Yeah, that was a t- that that one that fart was textural. I could I got the whole thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. And that gets yeah. that got to our embodied theme, you know. In a way, he kind of runs as sort of a motif manager, you know. Mm-hmm. Which you may do for you know your your life. You've you've got kind of the little sort of thematic unifying and also disunifying element. He's chaos, entropy, uh, catharsis, and uh, evolution all in one. Mm-hmm. Well, all right. That'll do it. Thanks. So all much. right. Big Thanks, everyone. Episode. Happy New Year. I think this might be running up on a four-hour episode. So that's uh, that's pretty substantial. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, I, I, well, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't know. I was having so much fun. <laughs> I was too. Yeah. That's why it went on as long as it did. But, oh, wow. Uh, okay. Well, we have a big, a big end of the year lost explorers bash. So thank yeah. you. Okay. Take care everyone. Happy new year. Be safe, be sane, and we'll be back.